You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, I've got just one thing for you. Mona Lisa 7, ribocyclob plus endocrine therapy. At long last, a CDK4-6 inhibitor has reached the benchmark of improved overall survival. This is something to celebrate. You've seen it all over the news. It's a New England Journal of Medicine paper. And here on the plenary session stage, we're going to take a closer look at it. Next, I have an interview with Dr. Stacy Dusitzina. There is no one out there in cancer drug space doing more hard-hitting research on the intersection of cost, affordability, and the patient experience than Dr. Dusitzina. And she's gonna talk about many of her groundbreaking papers, and she's also gonna talk a little bit about the process by which researchers should decide on what ideas to pursue. So we have a very long and far-reaching conversation that I hope you stick through because it is a good one. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. Okay, ribocyclob plus endocrine therapy in breast cancer, Mona Lisa 7. This is the first, the very first CDK4-6 inhibitor to show all-cause overall mortality benefit, not just progression-free survival benefit, as all other trials had shown to date. We at long last can sate the critics and say, OS, check, it's been met. Well, not so fast. I took a close look at this paper and I found some things that I want to point out to the plenary session audience. Number one, two professional medical writers provided editorial support and were paid by the sponsor. Boom, right there in the methods. Thank you, professional medical writers. On a prior episode of this podcast, I explained why I don't like this practice. I think they actively smooth out the message, and I think that it is contrary to how we think about the basic ethics of authorship, which is you put your name on something You best have written it. That's uh, Authorship 101. That's the kind of authorship rules that every college freshman uh, has to adhere to, lest they be expelled. And yet those are not the rules, unfortunately, that uh, take place in biomedicine. So tune into a prior podcast to listen to that. I'm going to pair this ribocyclob article with another article. This is called Overall Survival with Palbocyclob and Fulvestrin Advanced Breast Cancer. This is an article, Paloma 3, that shows, boom, The differences in overall survival in the entire trial group were not significant, Paloma 3. So that's in stark contrast with Mona Lisa 7. Now, why is that the case? That is the little puzzle that I spent some time thinking about. And I hope I'll give you some idea of why that might be the case. Let's start with Palbo and Fulvestrant. So, 
Both palbociclib and ribociclib are being paired with some sort of endocrine therapy. They're being used in metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. They are tested in two slightly different populations. Arguably, the population in the palbociclib study is at greater risk of the event. Uh, by that, I mean their survival curves are worse. This is a postmenopausal population. Um, the population um, at risk in the Mona Lisa 7 study is largely a premenopausal and perimenopausal population, so slightly different populations. But I, I don't think that's really um, you know, going to be the major explanatory factor for what's going on here. Some of the differences between Mona Lisa 7 and Paloma 3 as reflected by that population are also captured in the age. So, you know, from the Lancet paper of the Mona Lisa 7 study, the initial paper, the median age is 43 on ribocyclib, 45 on placebo. Now, in contrast, um, in the fulvestrin palbociclib study, it's 57, 56. Okay, so this has to do with, you know, you're going to go for largely postmenopausal patients in the palbofulvestrin population and uh, largely pre- or perimenopausal patients in the ribocyclib study. Okay, so... You know, that's that's one of the differences in the population. Um, I think uh, one of the ways in which um, that difference kind of shows itself is the median survival on the control arm. So in the placebo fulvestrin arm, we're talking about a median overall survival of 28 months. On the palbo fulvestrin, it was 34 months. That's not a significant difference in Paloma 3. In the... Um, in the Mona Lisa 7 study, in the control arm, the median overall survival is 40.9 months, which is a little bit higher than it is in the palbofulvestrin arm, uh, and it was not yet reached in the ribocyclib arm. And to be honest with you, that 40.9 months, that's probably shorter than it will be in continued follow-up because there are very few patients at risk right around that 55 percentage point mark of OS, and suddenly the patient's at risk falls, so just a few events are actually pulling that uh, line down to hit the mean. There's something else I read about ribocyclib that said the 42-month survival was, oh, how did they put it? 42-month survival was 46% versus 70%. It's a very misleading time point uh, to look at the curves because there's only seven people at risk at both of those time points. And in the preceding time interval, just a couple of events drag that curve down dramatically. So I think looking at 42-month differences in OS, that's very misleading, obviously. But be that as it may, ribo plus endocrine therapy, palbo plus endocrine therapy. You know, these are CDK4-6 inhibitors paired with endocrine therapy. One is not statistically significant, doesn't quite get across that line, the Paloma 3 study. And the other one is statistically significant. Uh, it gets you across the line, Mona Lisa 7. It's the first time ever. And then, you know, for people who want to argue that this is a matter of statistics, it's also kind of a matter of just the raw effect size. That hazard ratio is above 0.8 in the Paloma 3 study. And it's a, here it's about 0.7. Uh, in the um, in the Mona Lisa 7 study. So, you know, there's a bigger difference between the curves, both numerically, relatively, uh, in any sort of sense of the word, and statistically, of course, one crosses a threshold of significance, the other does not. Okay, all that said, I'm, I'm dancing around the issue. I read these closely, I, I thought about it, and the more I read it, I realized, you know, what was the key, the key flaw in the Mona Lisa 7 study. And, and I'm just going to give it to you right off the bat. I'm not going to go through all my usual points. This is what I think it is. Among the people, and let me say that again, among the people who had progressive disease, 
on ribocyclib and placebo in this study among women who discontinued the trial regimen. Okay. Among 45-year-old women with pre- and perimenopausal breast cancer who discontinued a CDK4-6 inhibitor and a hormonal therapy, 68% of the ribocyclib group received any subsequent therapy and 73% of the placebo group received any subsequent therapy. Okay. Now, let me give that to you for Paloma 3. In the Paloma 3 study, among the 168 people in placebo who have discontinued therapy, 83%, 140, in the, received subsequent therapy, any subsequent therapy. Among the 312 women in the palbo fulvestrin group who've discontinued therapy, 79% received subsequent therapy. So let me give that to you again. In Mona Lisa 7, among the people who discontinued therapy, 68% and 73%, about 70%. In the PALBO study, among the people who discontinued therapy, 79%, 83%, about 80%. It's about 10 percentage points higher in the PALBO study than in the Mona Lisa 7 study. And the Mona Lisa 7 study doesn't give you more granular details. It doesn't tell you how many had two or more lines after this, three or more lines. And the other thing worth noting is that treatment with chemotherapy prior to entering the study is also more common in Paloma 3, 14% in Mona Lisa 7 versus 34% in Paloma 3. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say the one trial that has a benefit and a better hazard ratio on OS, the Mona Lisa 7, has about a 10 percentage point lower use of subsequent therapy than Paloma 3, which does not have a survival benefit and does not have as impressive a hazard ratio numerically, okay? So the trial with the better OS hazard ratio has a lower subsequent use of therapy, okay? Well, maybe your first thought is, well, perhaps it is logical that women on Mona Lisa 7 get less subsequent therapy than women on palbocyclib. And, I, and I'd be very clear, what, I, what I've done here is I've calculated the percentage among people who discontinue the study intervention. I'm not calculating it based on intention to treat, which is kind of a misleading way that it was presented in the palbocyclib paper. And I think it was presented in that way because they wanted you to ignore the fact that there's 17% of women who are progressing on placebo fulvestrin who are not getting any subsequent therapy. And so they tried to present it as an intention to treat 80% because you would assume, they perhaps hope that you assume that they're still on the treatment, um, but they're not. 17% of women who progressed on that regimen received nothing else. And similarly, uh, something like nearly 30% of women who progressed on ribocyclib uh, got nothing else thereafter and who present on the placebo arm of that study got nothing else thereafter. Okay, so you'd say maybe that makes sense. Well, one of the ways you might try to interrogate that question as to what should the rate of subsequent therapy be is a recognition that the ability for a person to receive subsequent therapy is likely a product of the fact whether or not they have progressive disease, which very likely is the case for all of these women because this is a clinical trial where progression is the primary endpoint, but also based on what someone's performance status might be at the end of the therapy. And one sort of stand-in, one surrogate for that would be how long do they live? So in the Paloma 3 study, as I mentioned to you at the outset, the median overall survival on placebo arm was 28 months. On the palbo fulvestrin arm is 35 months. Now, 
in the Mona Lisa study, um, I think we have sort of a spuriously low median OS on the control arm because few events drag it down. And on the uh, intervention arm, I think we have not yet reached it. So that's not really a good comparison. So I just picked a nice, easy way to compare these two studies. And here's what I picked, the 30-month landmark survivals. So if you were on the placebo arm of the Paloma 3 study, your 30-month landmark survival, what percent of women who are alive at 30 months who got placebo is about 45%, 47%, something like that. I mean, I'm just using my eyeball and some pens. If you were on palpable fulvestrin, it's like 51, 52, 53%. So, I mean, we're right around the 50th percentage mark. Now, in the ribocyclib study, the 30-month survival is something like 65% on the placebo arm, and it looks to me like it's almost around 80% on the treatment arm. My point is it's much, much higher. What's my point here? Among the women who progress on these trials, a higher fraction of women in the Paloma 3 study is getting a subsequent therapy than in the Mona Lisa 7 study. Now, that doesn't make sense because in the Mona Lisa 7 study, they're living longer than in Paloma 3. So if anything, the higher fraction should be in the Mona Lisa 3 study because among the people who progress, their life expectancy is better. They're ability to live is better, thus likely their performance status and ability to receive some subsequent therapy is higher. Okay, so what I think is going on here is sort of the flip side of Titan. The Titan study finds an OS benefit of apalutamide, perhaps in part because they did not give appropriate standard of care therapy prior to enrolling on this study. So the use and rates of docetaxel use were far beneath what we had hoped to see, and the interaction coefficient suggested that among those who got the docetaxel, they very likely needed and could have gotten because they were fit to get it based on their ECOGs and age, um, there is no additional benefit from apalutamide. I mean, that's kind of what that forest plot looked like to me. In this study, I think we see the opposite that the failure here is a failure to provide adequate therapy after progression. In the Mona Lisa 7 study, in the Lancet paper that came out a few years ago, the median progression-free survival on the control arm was 13 months, and it was 23 months in the ribocyclob arm, and all of these women came off the protocol when they had progressive disease. These women on the control arm, they're living at least to 40 months. So we're talking about maybe two more years after that. That's, that's just sort of what it looks like after they progress. They're living years after they progress. Why is only 70% of them getting treated? Okay, that's the key question. Why isn't that 96%, 97%? Why is it higher in Paloma 3 than it is in Mona Lisa 7? Because in Paloma 3, there's less opportunity less time to treat those women than in Mona Lisa 7. That's the, that's the question. And then I think there's something else curious in Mona Lisa 7 that's worth discussing. The forest plot. Exploratory analysis of overall survival in subgroups. The hazard ratio for OS if you were enrolled in Asia was 0.43. Wow. Boom. That's big. The hazard ratio for OS if you were enrolled in Europe and Australia was 0.97. That's null. The hazard ratio if you were enrolled in Latin America was 0.63. The hazard ratio if you were enrolled in North America is 0.86. That's not so good. Okay, so the Asia group really, really had a huge benefit there. What about Mona Lisa 3 Lancet supplement? I'm going back. 
where is the recruitment of this largely done? I'm going to read you the, this is in descending order of enrollment. This is really nice, actually. This supplement, the Lancet supplement, I think, is nicer than the New England Journal supplement uh, from the PFS report of ribocyclob Mona Lisa 7. Okay, the number one accruer globally. Drum roll, please. The number one accruer is... Seoul National University Hospital, Republic of Korea. Professor Im, 22 patients. The number two accruer, Professor Son from the Republic of Korea, 17 patients. Number three, Dr. Gomez, 14 patients from Mexico. Number four, Dr. Lee, Korea. Number five, Dr. Jung, Korea. Number six, Dr. Villanueva Vasquez, Spain. Number seven, Texas, MD Anderson. Number eight, Italy. Number nine, India. Govinda Babu, 11. Number 10, Ottawa, Canada. Number 11, Taiwan. Number 12, Germany. Number 13, Italy. And these are all, you know, descending order. And it goes on. This is a long, long tale. Oh, now let's talk about Paloma. Number one in Paloma is the nation of the Ukraine. Number one, Ukraine. Number two, Korea. Number three, United States. Number four, Korea. Number five, Japan. Number six, Italy. Number seven, Korea. Number eight, United Kingdom. Okay. Why do I, why do I make this point? I suppose I fear that what might be happening here is that the benefit seen in Mona Lisa 7 is being driven by perhaps centers or hospitals or regions in the world where the use of subsequent therapy is not the same as it would be in the United States. So we all know in the United States, at any high-performing cancer center, Patients with this type of disease who have progressive disease, that's not going to be the only thing they get. They're going to get other treatments. They're going to get other treatments like the treatments that were given for the 70 or 80% of women who got subsequent treatments. And so just to, um, to look at the, um, the Paloma study, they're given things like aribulin, paclitaxel, sapecitabine, doxorubicin, vinorelbine, gem, cyclophosphamide, carboplatin, eczemestane. Uh, some got kind of bolero regimens with everlimus. I don't think you had to do that. The use of crossover in both these trials is minuscule. It's not even really worth discussing. Um, it, um, it's beside the point. It's a fraction of things. It's a, it's a confounding factor that they introduced uh, through the approvals of these drugs and seeking initial therapies and in broad uh, upfront indications. So, you know, it's, it's neither here nor there. I, I think it actually doesn't account for anything. Anyway, and only a fraction of people, like less than 20% of people got that in, in the Paloma study and I think even a smaller fraction in the, uh, in the Mona Lisa 7. Uh, and, and, and anyway, the Mona Lisa 7 has a benefit. Okay, I fear that this is sort of the opposite of Titan, that you're not getting the adequate therapy on the back end. And if this is the only thing you're getting, then that's not good. You're not really answering the clinical question of whether or not ribocyclob plus endocrine therapy adds to, adds to best available therapy in the United States. Does it add to what we're doing? It answers the question of ribocyclob plus endocrine therapy is superior to endocrine therapy, asterisk. There's another nuance I want to probe with you. If you run these trials and you take people who are supposed to get many lines of therapy and you only give them one therapy, which is the therapy they receive on the study, how, how might a drug that improves PFS that doesn't really improve OS actually improve OS? This is kind of a paradox. Imagine I run a study in a nation where there is no subsequent therapy and I do a randomized trial of endocrine therapy, okay? Endocrine therapy plus or minus delayed CT scan reporting. What's that he said? Delayed CT scan reporting? Yeah, this is a thought experiment. I'm doing a trial 
It's called DaVinci 7. And I'm doing this trial globally, and it's a randomized control trial in pre- and perimenopausal women of endocrine therapy plus or minus delay in CAT scan reporting. And by delay in CAT scan reporting, I meant a six-month delay in CAT scan reporting. That's the clinical study. I'm running it in a country where this is the only thing available for women with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. They're randomized to endocrine therapy. The control arm looks a lot like how it looked in Mona Lisa 7. The intervention arm, they don't get the PFS results right away. It's got the delay of reporting. That's the intervention. I delay the CAT scan results by seven months. What do I do in this arm? Well, I take a lot of women who have technically progressed on endocrine therapy and I keep them on endocrine therapy even after progression, okay? Such a study might even improve OS. Why? Because the group that falls off therapy is getting nothing and the group that's on endocrine therapy, even though they may have met resist 1.1 progression, there may be some downward force exerted on tumor growth by being on endocrine therapy. And so treating some of them uh, on average with endocrine therapy beyond uh, the other group might continue to exert benefit and they might have some, some small difference in outcome. So is that all that RIBO is doing is the question that comes to mind. You know, is RIBO actually improving the OS? Or is it improving the OS in a backdrop where a sizable percentage of people are not getting subsequent therapy? And because it in fact delays PFS scans by some amount of months, actually keeps someone on hormone therapy longer. You know, is how much of the benefit of ribocyclib is the anti-disease activity? And how much of the benefit of ribocyclib is that because you're on ribocyclib and because the CAT scan doesn't meet the arbitrary resist 1.1 cutoff, you happen to be getting endocrine therapy for longer. How much of it is the extended duration? So how much of it is the delay in the CAT scan? How much of it would be captured by the thought experiment? We don't know the answer to this question. We simply don't know. But this thought experiment illustrates why it's also wrong to conclude that even if the backdrop of medications is inappropriate, as it perhaps may be in Mona Lisa 7, at least it does validate a dr this drug as a life-prolonging agent because it may not do that. The way to validate a drug as a life-prolonging agent is to Prove it prolongs life when all other care is up to the standards that we have given in this country based on many, many prior studies um, that have shown what is the best available therapy. So just like in Titan, you can't deprive someone of standard of care on the way into a study. You can't deprive someone of standard of care after a study in the hopes of eking out an OS benefit. I think the forest plot is really provocative in ribocyclob endocrine therapy. All of the benefit appears to be not all of the benefit, but a lot of the benefit comes from Asia. Europe and Australia, it's n it looks quite null. Latin America, there's some benefit. North America, there's some, but not a lot. And I actually don't know if Mexico is being counted as Latin America or North America in this, in this forest plot. It might be interesting to see a forest plot plotting outcomes of this drug by, line of, by number of therapies. Um, what is the hazard ratio for death if this is the only thing you got versus if you got two lines or three lines or four lines or five lines? Will it regress to the null? Is this an artifact of the fact that 30% of people are not getting any subsequent therapy? And that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense when you're talking about 80, uh, you know, 60% survival at um, 30 months. It doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense that these women have progressed and been progressed for many, many months and only 70% are getting some subsequent therapy. 
few other things that struck me about Mona Lisa 7. It has been acknowledged that showing improvements in OS in trials involving patients with metastatic breast cancer may be challenging because of potential crossover between treatments and subsequent receipt of active treatments. Well, I would say that um, good drugs improve outcomes beyond best available drugs. And I hope you're not hinting that you're not planning on giving them subsequent active treatments. Uh, but that appears to be what those percentages suggest, that it's lower than what I would hope it to be. And it's 10 percentage points lower than what it appears to be in Paloma 3. I said two, medical, two professional medical writers provided editorial support and were paid by the sponsor. Well, good for you. Good for you. We, we don't want to write our own papers anymore. I am pleased to announce that Malignant, um, I'm going to write a sequel to Malignant, and uh, I'm looking for medical writers to just do all that writing for me. I'll be happy to um, edit for uh, important material after the fact. Recently, the Paloma 3 trial assessed overall survival with palbo or placebo plus fulvestra in patients with hormone receptor HER2-negative advanced breast cancer. Overall survival was not significantly longer in the palbo group. There are key differences between Paloma 3 and Mona Lisa beyond endocrine therapy that was used. Paloma 3 included premenopausal and postmenopausal women who were more heavily pretreated, whereas all the patients in Mona Lisa 7 were premenopausal or perimenopausal and were receiving initial endocrine therapy. These differences may limit, oh, but you forgot one, the fact that in Paloma, a higher percentage of people got subsequent therapy. You that one out. Hmm. Shucks. How'd that happen? Um, oh, and, and not to let the Paloma 3 uh, off the hook too much. Uh, although it says, the first author wrote the first draft of the manuscript, points. A professional medical writer provided editorial assistance and was paid by the sponsor. Uh, all authors and participating institutions have agreements with the sponsor regarding the confidentiality of data. Right, of course, it, data belongs to those who own it, which apparently is companies and not patients. I didn't know that. I didn't get that memo. I spent some time trying to think of like an analogy that I could tell listeners of plenary session about Titan, about Paloma, about Mona Lisa 7 to kind of really drive home the point of why, um, you know, it's important to test drugs beyond what we're actually doing and not to like deprive people of those drugs. And the analogy I was thinking of is like, um, you know, it's like if somebody's trying to sell you a new sports drink and you're running a marathon and they're like, oh, you know, you're not allowed to drink water before the race. That's like one trial. And the next one is you're only allowed to be randomized to drinking water or sports drink and water uh, for the first uh, six miles of the race. Um, But you're only allowed one cup of water, and if you do sports drinks and water, you can have a little bit more fluid. Uh, But then you're cut off, and you're not allowed to drink water for the entirety of the race thereafter. And then sports drink, lo and behold, it wins both ways. If you deprive them of water up front, sports drink wins. Um, If you uh, allow sports drink to be given in addition to water, and you're not allowed to drink water after some cut point in the race, sports drink wins. But In neither case have you really asked the question of whether or not sports drink, when added to the proper amount of water or whatever somebody wants to drink when they're running these races, uh, improves performance. That's the real question. And and that's the same thing in cancer clinical trials. Do new drugs improve outcomes beyond best available therapies? And that means best available therapies before you go into the trial, best available therapies while you're on the study, and best available therapies after you progress on the study. And then the endpoint that matters is overall survival. Because if it is in fact the case that all of those older, uh, lousy drugs in breast cancer collectively in a row, in a sequence, can achieve the same OS as ribo plus these drugs, then it really makes one wonder, why do you need the ribo? What's the ribo adding? It's definitely adding toxicity. Is it adding benefit? Now, some people may say, well, it's better than chemotherapy. There's a quality of life benefit over chemotherapy. And unfortunately, 
I've got to put that issue on the back burner because I've got an answer for you that's going to be so, 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 so good. But unfortunately, that paper is under review and I will not dare scoop Allison Haslam, who has done some really awesome work on that paper. And we're going to be back on plenary session and I'm going to take you through that analysis. I hope when that paper gets accepted and published on a future plenary session. So that's it. Mona Lisa 7. Strangely, OS is quite good. 30 months. Uh, it's much higher than Paloma 3. Uh, and yet, the rate of use of subsequent therapies is a little bit too low for my likes. And that discrepancy likely translates into a forest plot that shows benefits in some regions of this world, but not other regions of this world. And that is a big question mark on this study, whether or not it would have had the same benefit had people received as much subsequent therapy as they ought to have received. And that's what I don't know the answer to, but that's what caught my eye. Well, on that positive note, stay tuned for this discussion with Dr. Stacy Dusitsina. There is no one more knowledgeable about drug prices than Dr. Dusitsina. You won't want to miss this. Hey, podcast listeners, I realized later I made one misstatement in my monologue. I shouldn't have said that we should look at subgroups based on how many subsequent lines of treatment they received. Any epidemiologist will be able to find the flaw in that. I should have said it would be interesting to look at subgroups based on the center in which they receive treatment and the quartile by which that center averaged subsequent lines of therapy. That would be a nicer way to kind of look at that question. All right. Now, the interview. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Stacy Dusitzina. Dr. Dusitzina is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt Medical Center, and she is an expert in specialty drug pricing and pharmacoeconomics. A little bit of background, Dr. Dusitzina did her undergraduate and her PhD studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She was on faculty there for many years uh, before very recently uh, moving to Vanderbilt University um, where she has been on the faculty for, how long has it been? Just over a year. A year and a half. And I, I was saying this morning when I introduced her that, you know, I think, I think there, you can say a lot of things about what someone has accomplished, but I would say that probably there is no, um, you know, higher thing to say than this is somebody whose work, um, you know, I, I, I value highly and so highly that, you know, I cite it super frequently. And I was, I, I would say that probably among, among current researchers, I, I don't know, I've never checked this for sure, but I would have to think that you're in like the top five um, most frequently cited in terms of the people who I cite, the work that I, that I'm interested in, I like to cite. So for me, it's a great honor to have you here in Oregon. And thank you so much, Dr. Duzazina, for, for coming out here to visit us. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and excited to be part of plenary session. Plenary session. It's the, it's the big session. I like to say it's like the real ASCO plenary session, but our audience <laughs> is much broader. Yes, and, and I, I've uh, never had a chance to be in the ASCO plenary, <laughs> so yes, I, me I can't directly compare. <laughs> I heard from Dr. Huddis that the ASCO plenary session is, it has has quite a far reach, um, you know, uh, just over ten thousand people, and I do think the plenary session podcast actually might be might have passed that a while back. We, you know, I, I got to check the latest stats. <laughs> so, where to get started? You know, I want to hear a little bit about your path to, to doing the work you're doing. 
Um, and maybe that's the best place to get started because people will be interested. Um, I saw that you posted once on Twitter something like um, sort of a bit of encouragement for junior people out there. Uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I but if you know this was very kind of a faint memory. The memory was something like. If you're in college or you know you're early on in your career and you still haven't figured out what's your passion and you still I don't know maybe have not focused on your interest um, you know don't feel too bad about that because that's kind of how you felt um, when you were starting out and it took you some time before um, you really found the topic that has become you know your career and your passion is that fair to say oh yeah I, I would say that I, I don't know how rare my experience is relative to other academics, but I came from a very non-traditional background. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. Um, my parents are blue-collar workers, and there was kind of no guidance really about college and what to do there. And so I felt like a lot of uh, my early part of training was just trying to get trying to survive, you know, so working and paying my way through school and and trying to just finish the degree without a real sense about where to go. You were working when you were in college? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I worked full time um, and Mm -hmm. was an undergrad full time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was it's pretty different. So I I didn't have higher education on my radar. I just didn't think it was something that applied. Mm -hmm. You know, I knew getting an undergrad degree was necessary, but you know, not really what to do with it. So there wasn't a lot of strategy early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a lot of happy accidents. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned out that after working for a few years, I ended up, I went to work in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, managing randomized controlled trials. And I sort of stumbled into the field that I ended up in by looking at continuing studies courses and thinking, okay, well, with my background in basically a mix of psychology and economics, what could I do? You know, I started to realize that I wanted to be the boss. And Mm -hmm. to be the boss in that industry, I needed a PhD. I see. And so, you know, I really started to go down that path um, at that time. And it was, you know, really a series of fortunate accidents uh, to some degree. And then I became more strategic as I learned more. And your undergraduate major was what? So psychology was one, and then this degree called management and society, which is a mix of econ, um, psychology, and sociology. I see. And, you know, I mean, I'm just making an observation, but I feel like um, you're, of course, a very talented technical researcher, but I think one of the reasons why your work on particularly drug price is so relevant and so frequently discussed is, and and I got a sense of this in your talk, um, is and this might be related to your background, which is that I think you have empathy for sort of the average person out there in America who may have a condition like cancer, a loved one with a condition like cancer, and what does it actually mean to go to the pharmacy and actually have to pay these kinds of sums of money? And actually, are you able to do that? And you're nodding your head. Yeah. That does inform sort of your thinking on this topic. Oh yeah, absolutely. So. One of the things that I always do, and I think this is just how I come at a research problem or, or think about the world, is I put myself in the shoes of the person I'm, I'm trying to think about studying. Yes. Like, so mm-hmm. I often think about if I were a Medicare beneficiary, yes. and I was literally kind of envisioning being at the pharmacy counter and having somebody tell me my copay is $3,200. That, you know, it's just mind-boggling to me that other people wouldn't assume that people 
walk away without the drugs. You know, there's just this assumption that, yeah, that's high, but people manage. And it's like, is our field just too full of people who right. have come from privileged backgrounds? Right. Um, you know, I I had this really interesting exchange with my dad a couple of years ago where I asked if I could look at his Medicare Part D plan just to see what he had enrolled in just to make sure he had good coverage. And I saw that his coinsurance for specialty drugs would be 28%. Mm-hmm. And that's on par with every other plan. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, these are the drugs I study. They can be like over $10,000 per month. And he said, wow, if I had to pay that, I would just end up dying. Like, I wouldn't be able to pay that. I and was he's like, yeah, I know, exactly. That's mm-hmm. why this is so important is mm-hmm. that there are a lot of people like my dad who, you know, are upper middle class income, have worked, you know, really hard their whole lives, have a decent retirement, but, you know, have never been like rolling in money. Right. Who would just choose to not be treated. And I think that that's really unfortunate. I think a lot of people would be in that situation. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, 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 of course, I grew up in Northwest Indiana and, and I think about, you know, I think about even, you know, my own folks, but I think about my friends, parents, and, yeah. and I, I know for sure that you go to the pharmacy counter and somebody says, this copay is going to be $2,000. They will laugh. They'll yeah. say it's ridiculous. <laughs> and then they're, they're just going to walk out. And then they're going to go later to the doctor, maybe a month later. I, I, they may not even go right away. And they're going to tell the doctor, you're crazy. Yeah. You wrote me this prescription. Did you You know it's a couple thousand dollars? Yeah. Or you think they're so crazy, you stop going you to stop them. You stop going to the doctor because too, right. you don't trust them anymore yeah. because you think that they're just a maniac. Yeah, they're a maniac. They lost touch with reality. I have yeah. a doctor who doesn't even know what reality is. Yeah. And they think they're going to give me this pill for $2,000 a month. Uh, and no thank you. And, yeah, and there's, yeah. A real, uh, there's a real sense of shame, I think. You know, it's sort of, you know, people have this reverence for their doctor that mm-hmm. if the doctor tells you to do something and then you don't do it, it's much easier to avoid them than ever to go back and say, I didn't do it, right. and I didn't do it because I couldn't afford it. Right. You know, like, even the transaction at your doctor's office is a financial transaction for the patient. Right. And so going in and saying, well, I didn't have the money to start the drug may make you feel like you're admitting to the doctor you may have trouble paying them, which puts you in a really awkward position. So I think, you know, drugs are one thing, but that financial relationship with the healthcare system is also, it creates a lot of challenges for people. Hmm. That's well put. Um, you know, it makes me think about I guess, and you alluded to this in your talk uh, as your as your most cited paper. But I I, I do think of it's, uh, you know, it's cited for a reason. It's a good paper. It's an important paper um, because it, of course, like many important papers, it's not that the conclusion is that surprising or shocking. It's that you have documented what people merely had hypothesized, and the hypothesis was, of course, that even if you're talking about a drug that is life altering, life changing, the quote unquote, the true game changer. Uh, which is what imatinib is in CPCML. And you know, you're talking about a drug with you know a condition for which the median life expectancy was something like three to four years, but you take this drug potentially for the rest of your life, at least until very recent studies. But at the time, people believe for the rest of your life and your life expectancy is gonna be nearly normal, you know, at 22 years of life lost restored. So you're talking about like a truly transformational drug. And then the hypothesis is, if you made somebody have to pay a little bit more out of pocket to get that drug, Keep in mind, it's a truly transformational drug. Are they actually going to walk away from the pharmacy, um, you know, if you ask for a little bit more? 
And I think in this work that you did in the JCO, which was now, it's almost a decade ago. Is it 2010 or 2012? I think it was 2014. Oh, 2014. Okay. So a little, little sooner than that. So about five I years ago. I should know the date. Okay. Well, no. <laughs> time, I mean, time flies in, in this line of work. It does. Um, so, so you showed in that paper rather convincingly that even for this drug, if a patient has to pay more out of pocket, they are statistically and significantly and, cl- and, and, and to a degree that matters, more likely to walk away from that prescription. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge shock um, to our team to see such a large effect. You mm-hmm. know, I was trained in pharmacoepi. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you get a risk ratio of 1.2, you're like, you know, that's huge. Cha-ching, yeah. Um, you know, we saw an increased risk of, you know, from 10% of people discontinuing to 17% of people discontinuing in the first six months mm-hmm. based on having a higher cost. And the costs were pretty modest. Right. You know, Let's talk so about that. Yeah. it was um, wh- what we did is we used the distribution of costs to set a high copay level. And we said if you're paying at the 75th percentile or higher, then you're considered high cost. But that worked out to about $53, hmm. being kind of the low end of the high cost group. Mm-hmm. Now, per month. Yeah, per month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's. That doesn't sound that bad, but again, you start to think about everybody with private health insurance and the distribution of income for people who would be represented. And for some people, $50 a month, even for a very important cancer drug, you know, it's like it may make a difference. And it did seem to make a difference in that study. Now, I think that's where, you know, part of it may be education. You know, surely we wouldn't want people who had a $50 copay leaving their TKIs behind. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that's going to change their trajectory and the mm-hmm. length of their life. Right. Um, but I wonder, in many cases, like, is that clear to patients? You know, doctors right. kind of feel like they're like, no, we know that for sure. But I'm not sure how well all of this translates to patients about just how beneficial the treatment is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you, I, I, I'm a hundred percent sure, though I can't prove it at the moment, that um, that there are a lot of people out there who probably don't have a very granular idea of what benefits, if any, um, a treatment provides. In part because I think the reality of healthcare, you know, there's so many conversations that are so have to happen so quickly that a lot of things for better or worse, just the fact of the matter, and I don't support this, but a lot of things end up being like, oh, just do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But nobody really walks through, well, what would happen if you didn't do X, and what would happen if you didn't do Y, and yeah. what would life look like? You know, that kind of range of possibilities in all these scenarios. But I think your paper was really, I think, sobering, a wake-up call. Um, and it came out at a time where, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, we didn't talk too much about high drug prices, mm-hmm. in part because it wasn't as big a problem. Yeah. Um, but. It was easy for a lot of people to say that high drug prices are problematic for bureaucrats, for for people who are out there in the offices pushing pencils in these companies, but they're not problematic for actual people because we have systems that solve all that, and the end user, the person who needs health care, they're going to get what they need because this is America. It's the greatest country on earth, and it's the greatest health care system on earth, obviously, and so they're going to get what they need, and and, and, and this is not going to be an issue, but what you're showing is that even in this really good healthcare system, uh, particularly for people who have insurance, as yep. your paper is showing, yep. and and 
um, that these copays that you wouldn't think would matter, they actually do matter to real people. And that $50 a month for a lot of people who I knew growing up, that's a lot, that's a meaningful amount of money. Yeah. Um, that's the difference between being able to do some things in their life or not being able to do those things in that month. And so for a lot of people, that is an unthinkable sum of money. And when you start talking about copays, which we talked, which you talked about this morning about Medicare, um, out-of-pocket expense, it's really unthinkable sums of money. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there are real barriers to people taking their drugs. And, you know, while there are some systems that are set up, you know, a lot of people ask about things like copay support and other resources. Yeah, they are definitely out there. But they also are geared towards people with more resources. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, if you were going to an academic medical center, sort of the best place to get care in your area, they may have an entire team set up to help find copay support for you because they have a specialty pharmacy inside of the hospital. Um, and they have financial motivations as well as clinical motivations to get people to get the drugs at that pharmacy. Yeah. Um, so they will help figure out how to pay for it. Now, if you're outside of one of those centers and you're expected to leave the physician encounter with a prescription and you don't have access to all of that, it's a pretty heavy bar for people to try to, like, you know, get get acquainted with all of the financial resources that are out there. Um, so I think that it, it still is geared in a way where if you don't have kind of access to the best doctors and the best side of care and uh, financial resources and a lot of kind of technical resources mm -hmm. to be able to mm -hmm. use the web, for example, right. to search for, for right. treatments, you know, a lot of older adults aren't in a position to do that. And it I think the double whammy of having cancer and dealing with all of that, the stress that's, a, you know, and the education and information you're trying to take in. It's like you don't have a ton of time and you don't probably want to spend all of your time looking for resources to pay. Right. Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, you make me think of two things. One, I don't know if it's been empirically studied, but it would be very interesting for somebody to try to study when there are sort of um, uh, safety net programs in place or different benefits and different social services offered by groups. Um, are the people who are really the most socioeconomically disadvantaged taking advantage of these services at the same rate as those who may also be disadvantaged but less disadvantaged or being plugged into better healthcare systems? And I think anecdotally, I would suspect that there are a lot of healthcare systems that they put too much of the burden on the patient, and for that reason, people will fall through the cracks. And the other thing it makes me think of is, you know, I'm lucky to work at the university hospital, and I have a, a nurse um, coordinator who works with me, and she's sort of she's an exceptional person um, and I think she makes it her point to do something that I think is so important for people with cancer which is she tries to take the stress off their shoulders and put it on her shoulders to the point where you know when she meets with patients that we're taking care of um, she gives them a calendar and on the calendar is laid out you know you go here on this day you go here on this day this is the time you take these medicines this day this day this day she makes it simple for the patient and you know she was once talking about which is asking me about some of what it might be like in a setting outside of this where they may not have a nurse coordinator mm -hmm. doing these kinds of things. And and then I, and then she said, you know, who does all that stuff for the patient? And I told her, um, you know, nobody does. Right. If they don't have a loved one to do that, then that might not get done. And, you know, the look in her eye of just like, oh, my God, you know, yeah. I, could, I could just see that look. And and I knew she's she's just right because, 
I mean, if you think about it, it's bad enough to have often a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. But you top that off by giving somebody more paperwork than they've ever had to deal with in their life, you know, as an extra burden. Mm -hmm. And then sort of taking all of the discretionary income that a a person has been able to uh, sock away in a career that they were hoping to leave to their kids or they're hoping to, um, you know, do something with that disposable income that they scraped by to save. And you're going to take all that income away from them, burden them with this huge task. Uh, It it is very cruel, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that, your nurse coordinator, you know, it reminds me of my my mom had a heart attack and when I was in grad school and when she was discharged from the hospital, you know, like she had a ton of prescriptions to pick up and some basic discharge instructions and, you know, came from a good hospital. It wasn't like this was, you know, a, a, a place where you wouldn't want to go to get care. And, you know, I was training in a pharmacy school, not as a pharmacist, but in a PhD program. So I had tons of access to pharmacists to ask medication-related questions. And it was just striking to me that it was really hard for me to organize her pills. Like, someone who (laughs) is trained, right? right. And and so I'm, like, reading the discharge instructions, and it's like, this is not really that clear. Yeah. And then trying to, like, set it up so that she had exactly what she needed when she needed it. And you're using a pillbox. Like yeah, a t- exactly. Right, right. So okay. pillbox set yeah, up, you yeah. know. And then just kind of realizing that, uh, you know, there were several questions, like medicines that she would say, oh, I really hate this because it's so big and it really gets stuck in my throat. Right. And, you know, so I would call my friend who was a pharmacist and right. I'd say, are there any options? Right, like, what, right. what can she do? Right. And realizing how much you know information and time i was spending just with this kind of relatively straightforward clinical scenario right and it just made me really appreciate the fact that you know if you don't have that help it's so overwhelming you know the other thing it reminds me of is uh we're undergoing a house remodel right Mm -hmm. now and while it's not the same, obviously, as having, you know, a, a serious illness, the level of disruption and the level of unknown levels of spending mm. and totally out of your control, you're at the mercy of all of this, these other people who mm. you don't have the expertise to manage. It's just, it's a highly stressful event. And it's sort of like, I just can't imagine undergoing complex cancer treatments with the also the financial burden and you know just being you're sick you you are not well so like undergoing all of that while being unwell is just it's crazy that our system you know like our system should basically embody your nurse coordinator yeah like if our system could just take someone who gets a diagnosis and say all right we're taking care of you we're going to make sure you have everything that you need we're not going to give you treatments that provide little to no benefit and run up the tab. Yeah. Instead, we're going to treat you exactly, you know, how we would treat our family. Yeah. That would be better. I agree with everything you said. And I really like your analogy because 
I'm in healthcare, so I'm sort of been so rooted, and it's hard to kind of imagine what if I didn't know anything about healthcare. But I do. There's lots of things I don't know things about, like uh, basic home repairs and, mm-hmm. and things around the house. So somebody, if I get a contractor to come in and ask him to do something, you know, uh, move, you know, move this, and they come to me and they say, "Oh boy, I got in there and I looked around and I got to move all these pipes around," and I say, "I said, oh boy, is this true or not? I mean, does he have to move the pipes? <laughs> yeah. And how much should it cost? Should it be five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars? And then you know, my my head is spinning, um, and it's uncertain. When will they? Will this person be done? Yeah. I can't tell you that. I was like, well, it's a lot like healthcare. The doctor can't tell you these yeah. things. We don't know what we're going to get into. Uh, but but on top of it, in healthcare, of course, you feel unwell and you really need need someone to look out for you. You but feel get, pretty unwell going through a house renovation, too. <laughs> yeah, because your sleep is disrupted and you're like eating out of takeout containers in the back room. I can imagine. The other thing it makes me think about is, you know, the system that you're talking about where we provide this kind of support for somebody um, the way you did with your own mother and, and going through the pillbox and that kind of thing. And, and the way so many people um, provide, um, you know, care for loved ones, getting them to the appointments, planning their schedule, rearranging things so they can make that time. Um, that's something that the healthcare system doesn't take on. Uh, and, and, I, and I think it's because of the I think it's because of the money. Oh, yeah. Because we would rather, this is my hypothesis, I've never proven, we would rather, um, and we will always in healthcare, we will pay for interventions that consolidate or concentrate wealth in the hands of fewer parties than we will ever pay for interventions that disperse wealth. And one of the things that disperses wealth is if you had a labor force of people who would provide compassionate care, who will go pick up my patients and bring them here and take good care of them along the way, um, you know, and get them something to drink or eat if they need it while they're waiting to see the doctor and help them get in their chair and get the treatment they need. And if we took all the money we spent on like marginal and useless and, and, and mediocre drugs and we put all that money in that social system, you're going to hire a lot of people and you're going to spread wealth out, but you're not going to concentrate wealth in the hands of a few investors and that kind of thing. And so that's why sort of the the way in which lobbying and pressures in society work is always to push it the other way. Yeah. And I think just going back to a point, you know, you had asked about whether or not resources are kind of distributed to the people who need them the most. Mm -hmm. Um, It it makes me think a little bit about, um, so the system you're describing, there are examples of that, Hmm. but it's kind of this concierge medicine. Right. Right. So if you have enough money and you have a hospital that wants to really bring in high end clientele, right, you between them and their insurance company can really foot a huge bill. So like there's additional margins built in to get that, you know, kind of white glove service. Correct. So you have that for high end customers, but like then you have you definitely don't have that for customers across like the insurance distribution and certainly not for people who don't have health insurance like they're sort of left outside of the scope now like the distribution of the benefits piece you know it brought to mind a study and i don't i don't know the author off the top of my head so maybe worth if we can find it okay um they were looking at the use of free samples of medications and you know there's like Pharma companies will give doctors yeah. a bunch of free samples. Yeah. And one of the reasons that people argue that's a good thing is because you can say, oh, well, we give those to people who can't afford the drugs. But it turns out that in studies that have looked at who gets these, mm-hmm. it's basically well people. people with health insurance and yeah. who are, you know, better off yeah. financially. Yeah. 
So you're not actually using them to fill in the gap or be a safety net. You're mm-hmm. using them to push market share. Yeah. And so I think the same can be sort of set up mm-hmm. in the oncology system more broadly. Yeah. Where the people who are really getting this kind of high-end, better care are the people who can afford to be treated at some of the better centers, you know, the ones that are really kind of trying to roll out the red carpet and get people in the door. And the services they're offering are very valuable. Mm -hmm. But I would guess that in many cases, they're not... um, they're not necessarily equitable across patients with different insurance types in particular. I would suspect that that's true as well. Now, the other thing that I think about, I'm, I'm trying to, in my mind, take take the listener through many of the papers of yours I cite quite a bit. But the other thing I think about as an, sort of an early paper, and maybe I, I'm wrong to call it early, but it's early in my mind because it's kind of when I discovered your work. Um, an earlier paper that you had done that I thought was really provocative was a paper that I believe was in the JCO, if memory serves right, and it was a paper that looked at the price of imatinib, dasatinib, and nilotinib over time. And I think what was so interesting was, and you know, asterisk here, we're talking list prices, so don't crucify us. But I think what was so interesting is that you know between 2001 and at least 2007, we had at least three entrants in the CPCML frontline marketplace of. Uh, imatinib, nilotinib, and dasatinib. And different people debate it, but of course, I think when it comes to the, the most meaningful clinical endpoints of survival and quality of life, there's never really been a distinction shown between these three drugs. Nilotinib, nilotinib and dasatinib, of course, are more likely to drive deep molecular remissions, whether or not that translates to patient benefit, question mark, question mark, whether or not that matters in SOCL score, question mark, question mark, you know, high SOCL score risk. Okay, there are all these kind of caveats, but I think there's a lot of room for debate. And it might be fair to say that, you know, a good there can be a good doctor out there who likes one or the other for their particular side effect profile and, and prescribes that, um, and and no one would really be able to argue too much that they're doing a bad job, even though I, of course, am, believe that imatinib is, is the preferred TKI frontline, uh, and, and listeners can check out uh, Gambarcorti Passerini JAMA uh, Oncology for a viewpoint on that topic. Anyway, side note. Okay, so in your paper, what you had done was you plotted the price of these medications over time, and I think what would just made what really struck me, and I think this figure has been you know covered in every newspaper under the sun, is that the price just went up on all three of them in lockstep. Um, you're nodding your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, right, and this is kind of consistent with what we see for list price increases for cancer medicines is that they all go up regardless of how high their prices are set, and they tend to be going up around the same time. Uh, this has also been shown in other disease areas where um, I think insulin, for example, mm-hmm. all of the manufacturers taking list price increases at the same time and of similar magnitude, uh, which brings into question whether or not there are things going on behind the scenes collusion, that are yeah. yeah creating kind of a price collusion situation. Now, this kind of blew up big time in the generics market recently. There are a significant number of lawsuits coming around generic drug price fixing. Mm-hmm. And these, you know, terrible sounding, I, I just think about the optics to a patient who has their generic drug prices kind of fixed high yeah. where they're not seeing price reductions, hearing about how these, you know, heads of companies are getting together at a golf course mm-hmm. or over like a fancy dinner to talk about price fixing mm-hmm. and to make generic drugs more expensive for people. So, 
you know, to what extent is the same thing happening in the branded drug market as far as list prices, you know, being the same. And I think to the extent that patients pay based on list price, it basically just screws the patient over mm, right? Um, rather than it having any major impact on the health insurance plan, right? you know, if they're getting discounts. You know, and the other thing that makes me think about is we hear so often, uh, um, you know, people cite as an example the hepatitis C story about like, this is the way the system should work. There's competition, competition is lowering list price and things are going great, you know, because of competition. But the, the thing I think people forget is that, um, and you know, maybe it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle because the, the hep C story, it was so scrutinized that the behavior among the actors might have been different than the stories in places that are not so scrutinized. I mean, the optics where every eyeball was on the hep C story. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the things like all of the drugs in, say, kidney cancer, which I believe you did in a subsequent paper, um, all of the drugs in CML, um, it doesn't look like, it looks like the price is just marching up lockstep together, at least list price. Yeah, I mean, I think that in hepatitis C, it was just fundamentally a different issue because yeah. of who has to pay and, um, you know, how much they have to pay. So much larger group of patients who are going to be impacted mm-hmm. and need treatment mm-hmm. and a disproportionate number coming through state programs mm-hmm. or through prison systems, for example, mm-hmm. where those entities have to balance their budget versus, you know, the federal government, not so much. So mm-hmm. you end up in a situation where they're actually at an impasse where, Prisoners and people on Medicaid programs are suing the state for access, but the state literally cannot make the numbers work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a fascinating conversation um, with Rebecca Gee mm-hmm. on Louisiana, yeah, mm-hmm. from Louisiana, and she had made this really excellent point about you know if she treated everyone in her state who needed it she wouldn't have a budget for education. And they built these interesting tools to do kind of a trade-off analysis of like, what would you decide to cut back on? Would you cut back on roads? Would you cut back on education? Like what infrastructure gets, you know, the money taken away to accommodate this treatment? I think the other thing is, is, you know, you have these great head-to-head competitors in the hep C market, um, and it's a pretty short duration treatment, so. You end up with a good amount of competition that people really accept, you know, like an insurance plan could cover one or two, and it seems like that's probably good enough. Yeah. Cancer tends to be a little bit different, especially with preference. Yes. You know, so doctors have a preference. Yes. Makes it harder. Yeah. Well, a few few dinners here and there, and we'll have a preference. (laughs) (laughs) So, but I I think you're right. I mean, it makes it harder, and then the other thing is... um, some of the other differences, of course, is in cancer medicine. Unfortunately, like we can say like a condition like myeloma, it, it isn't that um, there may be competition for like what's the first drug you get, but there's not competition in the sense that over the course of your disease course, you may be exposed to all of the drugs in the space, you know, sequentially yeah. in a different order in different combinations. And, and, and there will be maybe perhaps even an outcry if there was one or two of those drugs that um, anyone tried to sort of restrict. You said something really fascinating to me, which was um, in your talk today, where you pointed out that there are a number of patients who are covered through Medicare Part D, 
And when they walk in on early in January for their refill of, let's say, Revlimid, which they're taking in the post-autologous transplant setting in myeloma of maintenance, you know, they're taking this drug, you know, maybe for at least 18 months, but who knows how long the doctor will want to keep it going. So they're taking this drug and they walk in there in January and they get that pharmacy bill and that bill may be more than $2,000. That's right. Yeah. So for a person on Medicare Part D who doesn't have a low income subsidy, and it's estimated about two thirds of Medicare beneficiaries overall would fall into that category, your first fill for a prescription for Revlimid would be $3,200. Do you have no other prescriptions that month? And it's your first fill of the year. And that's based on prices in the Medicare Part D program from late last year. Okay, and, and you were saying that there is data to suggest that 70% of people, if they're at the pharmacy and they get a bill over 2K, they're gonna, they'll walk away. Yes, so there's a, a great paper from Jalfa Doshi at Penn um, that looks at abandonment of oral uh, oncology treatments mm-hmm. uh, in JAMA Oncology, I think from last year, mm-hmm. that shows at different price points what percent of people are leaving their prescriptions behind. There's also an older paper um, that was on the same topic and found that if you look across insurance types, people in Medicare are more likely to abandon their drugs. So it kind of falls in line with what we would expect is this is really disproportionately hitting Medicare beneficiaries. Hmm. Um, And that, I mean, that to me is concerning that, you know, I think there've been a number of studies where they ask people who can even come up with that kind of money on a short notice in five days. And there's like a vast proportion of America that they they cannot even beg, borrow, or steal that kind of money on a short notice. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge amount of money. So I've I've seen um, questions about even coming up with a much smaller sum of money. Yeah. And a lot of people say that maybe they'd be able to come up with it, but they'd have to borrow from yeah. somewhere or yeah. friends and family. But $3,200, and then, you know, then the next month's prescription comes due, and that's almost $1,000 because that's your 5% coinsurance. So, you know, you may be able to get over the hump of the first month, but are you going to run a GoFundMe campaign every month to get your Revlimid? Right. Probably not. Right. You know, so I think that this is one of those areas where it's really difficult for patients and probably more difficult for those patients where... You know, they're going to a system, you know, going somewhere that doesn't have the resources to help them Mm -hmm. to figure out how to pay for it. Because in some systems, you know, they can help. The other thing that's interesting about that treatment in particular, it's part of a limited distribution Mm -hmm. network of of pharmacies, right? So Mm -hmm. in that way, I've heard from our specialty pharmacist, for example, at Vanderbilt, that they have a really hard time helping patients get that treatment because they don't have it on site. So they're not able to kind of use the same resources and tools to help navigate that for the patient. Mm-hmm. So whether or not that you know leads to more significant delays because the patient goes away and tries to get it, uh, it's unclear. We're hmm. hoping to add some actual data around that point in the next year or so. That would be great, that's interesting. You also, I mean, made this provocative point in your in your lecture today that despite a number of well-intentioned and perhaps even to some degree appropriate fixes to the problem of -of out-of-pocket spending, if you look across a number of drugs, the actual out-of-pocket expense for a person per year on Medicare Part D um, has jumped up 
uh, if they were on that drug in 2019 versus if they were on it in 2010. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. So we we have a paper that came out in JAMA last month that looked at this issue of for the 13 drugs that were available in both 2010 and in 2019, what a Medicare beneficiary would pay. And once you factor in price increases, even though over that period we closed the donut hole, Mm -hmm. so made the benefit much better for patients, patients now pay more for those drugs than they did in 2010 before the donut hole closed. Hmm. So price increases are really disproportionately harming patients as far as their access to drugs is concerned. I see. And 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 for the people out there who are saying, you know, you're not taking into account the rebates, your point is that you're talking about real money, out-of-pocket expense, which does not take those into account. It's based on the percent list price. That's right. So at the pharmacy counter, if you're paying a coinsurance or a deductible as a patient, you don't get the benefit of the rebate at the point of sale. Hmm. So there are proposals out there right now that the administration has to share rebates with patients at the point of sale, but those also wouldn't really help people on cancer drugs very much. Mm-hmm. We know rebates in that area are pretty small. So even the criticism about whether list price is a good marker In cancer, it's pretty close to what we would expect the net price to be. I see. You know, I want to ask you sort of a philosophical question, which I wonder if you, you know, because you kind of alluded to this. I mean, you made the point in your lecture today that, um, you know, all of the players at the table in the current, in, in in the way in which the system is, is created currently, and listeners who want to understand it, they can find these sort of super complicated subway map of New York City flowcharts that try to walk people through all the directions in which money is going. But money is moving in all sorts of directions, and there's the person on the end. Um, you know, I mean, what are the, the major players? You know, there's the pharmaceutical company, there's the PBM, there's the specialty pharmacy, there's the patient, there's the insurer, um, and then there's the government or society uh, kicking in money into the system. And one of the points you were saying is, you know, who who are profiting in this system? And the answer is, of course. Um, the, the the insurance companies are profiting, although the Affordable Care Act kind of caps their profit margin at 20% profit on revenue. The, in the pharmaceutical companies profiting and there's no cap on their margins and they can be as high as, you know, 40% per quarter or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, good business, uh, good line of work to be in uh, if you're getting that kind of return on revenue. Um, and, 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 you know, the the providers are, 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 are making salaries that are often good in, in Western civilization. Um, the uh, PBMs are profiting. And your point was that when so many constituencies are profiting, and these constituencies are, of course, advocating for their constituencies in the political system, um, there, you know, any sort of regulation of this space w- and any way to kind of get money back to the government and patients who really don't have an advocate in, on the table, it's going to be difficult politically because somebody's going to have to lose some money. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of see that where some of the proposals that have gained a lot of traction only go after one part of the system. Mm-hmm. So this is where the rebates proposal, you know, it very much centers on PBMs and their relationships with health plans and mm-hmm you know, how to get the rebate to the patient. And while I think the concept of that is good and and people tend to think, oh yeah, the middleman is bad. It's like, wait a second, the middleman is your negotiator in this situation, taxpayers and patients. So by kind of trying to manipulate only what the PBM gets or how they get paid, 
um, and how the health plan uses that money, you're just kind of shifting the dollars around within mm-hmm. the system. Yes. You're not actually lowering the total dollars. So I think one of the things that's very frustrating is that every other part of the system will jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, yeah, it's that other guy. Right. Like, take right. that guy's right. margin right. and then I don't lose mine. Right. And I think that's one of the things that makes it very hard is to actually fix this problem everyone will probably have to make less money, which is not popular with anyone. Yes. Except for patients. But then it's complex to explain how to fix it. So even if you have really sensible measures that are being proposed, I think the, um, I'm going to try to get it right, Prop 41, Prop 50? Yeah, yeah, the California. Yeah, the California Mm -hmm. proposal. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, voters were basically asked to Um, support a measure that would allow the state to negotiate drug prices for state and state purchases of drugs Mm -hmm. and there was so much pushback because there was this ad campaign basically saying it would raise prices for everyone else and it would be harmful so even though you know it's a very clear example of the state trying to manage spending and doing Mm -hmm. something very reasonable Mm -hmm. like People will vote against it because of the level of, mm, you know, pushback. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, there's yeah, like yeah. so much distraction. Yes, yes. And the messaging is hard. Yes, the like, message. Yes, it's very hard. <laughs> How, even you know, you're talking to somebody who you think, if I could really explain to you what this was all about, you, you'd be you'd be on the page. You Absolutely. Know, yeah, like mm-hmm. if you ex- sat down one on one with each right, person, you right, said, "Here's what's right. going on. Here's what they're going to tell you," but yes. that's not really true. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, they would vote. Right. And you're like, right, they right. would vote for the changes you're suggesting, but it's really hard because there's so much nuance. Um, and it's hard with policymakers. You know, there are lots of incentives that they have to act in a certain way. You know, we were discussing last night, um, you know, policymakers who otherwise seem sensible, but are trying to convince, you know, people that tomato sauce on pizza is a vegetable. Right. Right. Like right. policymakers have to also you know, work towards the interests of people in their area. Yeah. They want to be if, reelected. Right. And if you're in, in the thick of device country, you're yeah. going to do a lot of strange things on device regulation that may defy all logic and decency. Absolutely. Maybe I'll, I'll offer this as a, as, a, as a point of discussion, a contention, and maybe, I don't know if I, I believe it 100%, but I do sometimes worry that it might be true. Um, you know, I think a lot of people ask me when I talk about drug prices, um, uh, they ask me, why don't the insurers push back harder to bend the cost curve of medicine? And I thought about that, and I actually I came to this kind of perverse conclusion that, you know, if, I'm, if we're going out to dinner later and, I, and we're going to order a pizza, and I tell you, you can only eat 20% of the pizza. You can't eat 21% of the pizza. What size pizza do you want me to order, Dr. Ducetina? You're going to say extra large, mm-hmm. if you're, I mean, if you're very hungry. And, and if you like pizza, I don't know. I don't know if these two, I don't know if these two things are true, but I, I'm very hungry and I like pizza, so it can be me. Okay, so I guess what I want to say here is that I think maybe one of the perversities of the U.S. marketplace is that 
the the entity that you believe is financially incentivized to curb growth of spending over time is actually not incentivized to do that. They're incentivized to grow the economy, the healthcare spending on healthcare as big as possible because they get a bigger chunk of a bigger pie over time. But what they are concerned heavily about is volatility in the marketplace. A new gene therapy will come in one year. It'll blow up all their predictions of um, premiums that they've collected. Uh, it'll blow up um, sort of all the models they have, their forecasts. Um, what they're very concerned about is change, sudden, dramatic change. What they're in no way concerned about, couldn't care less about, is long-term healthcare spending trajectory. We could spend 40, 50% of GDP on healthcare. They'll be perfectly happy with that as long as we get there slowly and in a way that doesn't threaten year-to-year profits. Am I crazy in having this kind of worry when I'm in secret and private, you know? <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting point um, is that, you know, it's like the fox guarding the hen house, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that there may not be enough incentives for them to keep spending low. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the biggest incentive is really around premiums. So mm-hmm. like you said, you know, if you get that wrong or you go up too high yep, yep. and you have competitors, yep. you'll get crushed. You lose your market. You get crushed. Right? Yeah, because yeah. ultimately still in the con- this country, employer sponsored insurance is the way that yeah. most people are covered. So if an employer won't work with you because your premiums are too high or your ne- networks are too narrow, you know, that that I think keeps things a little bit in check. Um, you know, if you look at trends and what have what has happened to premiums in the health insurance market, yeah. it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I, I typically will add something like that to a talk to just give people a sense of the growth in premiums. Like if you think the trends in drug prices over time, year to year look crazy, yes. look at premiums for a family coverage on employer sponsored insurance. They are just madness. Yes, And you know, I think that there's this interesting thing that's happening where People aren't fully cognizant of, you know, that they know that their health insurance costs to the employee have gone up. So a lot of times that gets passed on to the employee in their paycheck. Yeah, it's lower. The living wage is lower. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but they don't get a raise. Yes, they don't get a You know, right, so right. like there's mm-hmm, definitely mm-hmm. wage stagnation yes. as a result. Uh, they may pay more and they may also get less generous coverage, which we've seen, right? Yes. More deductibles more percentage-based cost sharing. So I think that we're eventually going to hit a point where, you know, employers are really struggling to be able to keep up. Like they, and it's an interesting part of thinking about the economy right now. You know, there are a lot of people working. So companies will need to be pretty aggressive to get the right people on board and some of that's how rich is their benefit how much is their you know can you count on pay increases over time will that end up kind of getting us to a tipping point even faster than some of these issues around spending and profit margins um i feel like the average person would probably identify with that issue too yeah if you explain how that's related to healthcare spending and why they should care about healthcare spending yes you know another thing that i and I think maybe this is just a perspective that I have just thinking about how I interact with the healthcare system, how most of my family has over the years. It's pretty minimal, you know, like, right, right. And so yeah. mm-hmm. you think about where you're spending money and resources and 
I just think that having so much of our collective money going towards health and health insurance, eventually it's just going to seem crazy. So whether or not you can make the economic argument for, you know, how valuable a certain treatment is or, you know, that the price should be whatever the companies want to receive for it. It's like, well, I guess. But at what point are we just like, you know, draw a line in the sand because, collectively we don't really want to spend more than x percent paying for just health and health care yeah and I, of course there's all these great figures that i've seen recently that look at you know if you lump together social spending and healthcare spending in all these western nations um it's not that norway is spending less on health care they are but they're putting that money in social services and you know you think about all of the ways in which we could put more money in early childhood education, better meals for kids in school, and all of things that, you know, that that probably do have a long-term impact on health and well-being, and and all of the things that we think are part of health um, that aren't strictly speaking um, things you would see an MD for. You know, you think about the the fact that we may be misallocating our resources. We're spending pouring so much money in interventions that help few people quite little to perhaps not at all with great toxicity and great cost and we're not doing things that would be universally well appreciated will help populations and help our society in the future and that's a choice we're making although it doesn't always feel like an explicit choice but it's a choice we're making yeah and i think if you said okay we're gonna fix the size of your pie yeah right right then i think that forces the conversation about okay with this fixed pie yes like how do we divvy up the slices yeah and Maybe we should stop wasting so much money on something that doesn't really provide much benefit. And this is where I think the treatment value question comes in. Yeah, It's, do we want to have the money to pay for gene therapy that just completely changes the course of a person's life? Right. That's really expensive, small patient population, hopefully. If we want that money, if we want to reward that innovation then we need to probably look ourselves in the mirror and say, okay, well, what do we cut? Like, right. where is the part that can actually be pulled back? Right. And I would guess, you know, in healthcare, what's that statistic? Like, you know, it's like a third of healthcare dollars are wasted. That's what I've heard as well, um, yeah. You know, and your own work, I mean, has I mean, surely yeah. <laughs> shown, uh, you know, that there is a lot of waste. We do a lot of things in healthcare that we should not be doing. Not just uh, kind of no benefit; they can actually be harmful. Yeah. And when we think about how the money is taking away from people's paychecks yes. and actually financially harming them, we are doing harm when we use something that's ineffective. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, a few thoughts that you mean, you make me think about. One is like, you know, I think you can tell people like, look, we're spending so much on premiums. That's why your wage is stagnating, and that I think is is it does have impact with the average person because I think they we we feel it, especially in um, many communities around this country. Um, but but in addition to that, one of the ways in which high premiums I think hurt us is it robs us of the freedom to take a year off to say I'm going to save up my money and then I'm going to take a year off and do some passion project, go travel because you're really worried in the back of your mind in this country you want to walk around without health insurance? Are you crazy? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean I can tell you some stories about it. I've had some friends over the years who 
uh, just I mean who didn't have health insurance and once this one person um, closed a car door on their finger and they didn't have health insurance and they go into the emergency room and they just do an x-ray and they find out nothing's broken and they actually end up putting a splint and just taping it up and this person got a bill for six thousand dollars and and the, you know they spent a lot of effort trying to collect on that bill this was before the day where you could yeah. you could get that bill waived by shaming them in uh, Kaiser Health News <laughs> back in those days you'd have to just pre-twitter for, yeah pre-twitter you couldn't tweet it out tweet out your anger but you know they're all these kind of per- I mean, it was dangerous to walk around yeah. even with a little minor you know injury like that I guess what I wanted to say about the marginal and perhaps even ineffective therapies is I think it kind of speaks to what you were talking about, which is sort of the opaqueness of medicine, how medicine is like your renovation. There's lots of things, you know, you're not an expert in contracting, you may not understand, and should it really cost that, and does it really necessary, and and those kinds of questions. I think one of the things that medicine has gotten away with is... You know, there are there are a number of things we do in healthcare that are truly transformational, have saved lives, and are indisputable benefit. And because we've achieved these successes, we're able to pad our budgets with a number of interventions that may be marginal or ineffective or unproven. And who's who's going to be able to point out which is which? You, you yeah. may not have the technical expertise to go through. And and you know, I, I poured. Uh, the resources of, of of medical students and other people who who've worked with me over the years to try to pour through these things, try to tease them apart. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Uh, it's nuanced. It's complicated. It's not easy to tease these apart. But I think it is clearly the case that opportunists or unscrupulous healthcare actors see potential wealth in healthcare from. You can sell a product at a very high price with a very high margin, and you don't really even have to show it works. You just have to convince people it's kind of plausible that it might work, and and that has led to a number of perversities. Um, you know, I think about that figure yeah. you showed, which was like out-of-pocket healthcare spending, and I looked at all those drugs you had up there, and in my mind, like, you know, there's a matinib up there, which we're going to say, like, look, your doctor says you should take that. You really want to take that. That th- that $53, that's, trust me, pay that money. It's going to benefit you, that $53. Yeah. That's worth every penny. Um, but there are a bunch of medicines up on your list that I looked at, and I was like, oh, boy, that might, might not be worth $53. I don't know if that works at all, especially, um, well, this is a segue to your paper. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Oh boy, I, this people, listeners of this podcast will know. I've mentioned it quite a bit. Your paper that you did with Hannah Sanoff, um, who's a GI oncologist at um, UNC, um, and it was on uh, it was on serafinib for hepatocellular carcinoma. Yeah. And um, it's a very lovely paper because I guess you looked at um, you know this is a drug that in a randomized control trial. Um, improved median overall survival from eight months to 11 months, hazard ratio 0.7. It's a tough to treat cancer and that kind of benefit, that three month benefit earned a standing ovation. You looked in the Medicare data set and you looked at just Medicare beneficiaries prescribed this drug for this condition. Um, And the first thing you find is, boom, let's just see their survival. And the answer was, if if I'm right, that the survival of a Medicare beneficiary taking this drug in the real world was roughly half the survival of if you took sugar pill in the trial. And you're nodding your head. And then the next thing you looked at was, if if I did a propensity score matched analysis, um, and the and and you adjusted for immortal time bias, mm-hmm. and let's talk about that in a second, because your competitors don't adjust for that. Those, uh, um, so you adjusted for immortal time bias as well, and you did a propensity score matched analysis, and you made this really provocative argument that that marginal benefit of a toxic, costly drug in a clinical trial when you look in the real world, outcomes are far worse, and that benefit may evaporate completely. 
um, the drug may be no better than a propensity score matched group. Yeah. What? Yeah. What did? Tell us about this paper. Yeah, and, it yeah. was an interesting paper because, um, you know, I'm not a clinician and I didn't have any particular feelings about serafinib, so it, it, I was coming at it from you know the methodological mm-hmm. approach of trying to help you know, my clinical colleague who had this really interesting and provocative question. And, you know, she was coming at this question, I think, partially because she was treating these patients and was like, I think this drug is just not, Yeah, it does not have any benefit for people. And a lot of us have been in that feeling, yeah, have had that feeling, yeah. So, you know, we, we do the analysis and actually first we did it without accounting for a mortal time bias. Like, mm-hmm. so we ran the first model and we're yeah. like, oh, you know, serafinib actually looks okay. And then we started to kind of think through, okay, but not great, right? Yeah, yeah, like, right, so right, right, that, yeah. that doesn't mean it's good. It's right. just like, it, it, it looks slightly better, better than, than yeah, not yeah, being yeah. treated. Right. And then we realized, oh, you know, actually the way that we're analyzing this, we would basically assign anyone who died before they had a chance to fill serafinib as being in the no serafinib group. So we're kind of biasing our analysis towards uh, the no treatment group having a lot of people who die immediately. So if we set a landmark period to measure whether or not you had started serafinib or not, that fully accounts for any benefits you would have seen basically because you don't have this huge spike in people who never started anything, you know, dying immediately. And, you know, one of the other things, I think with observational studies, I'm very cautious. You know, I did a uh, class where I taught students how to use large databases to study these types of questions. And I kept giving them all of these, like, cautionary tales because yes. I think you have to use these studies uh, very, very carefully. They are hypothesis generating. They uh, have to be interpreted with caution. One of the things that made me feel quite uh, relieved was there was a registry study that's going on kind of in parallel mm-hmm. um, looking at serafinib yeah. versus no treatment and had basically spot on the same results as we were seeing. Uh, was it a European um, study? I actually don't know yeah. the answer to that. Okay. Um, we do cite it in the discussion yeah. section, um, which made me feel a lot better because one of the things you worry is, oh, what if we're biased in some way that we can't account for and this treatment has any benefit at all? You know, the other thing that I think was just really compelling to me is almost everybody in the Medicare uh, group who started serafinib, like a huge percentage of them had only one fill. Mm -hmm. So you might argue Mm -hmm. that that, you know, who knows how much of that drug they actually were able to take. But that was a tremendous cost to the program. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're talking tens of thousands of dollars per fill for something that doesn't have a benefit. Likely thrown in the trash. Absolutely. I mean, as a clinician, I tell you that probably what happens with that is you put a patient on 400 BID and they take it for a little bit and then they get really bad hand foot syndrome or they just feel really lousy and then they say, I'm never going to take this pill again. Yeah. You're lucky if they come back and tell you, uh, you know, as you point out, like a lot of people will feel like um, perhaps even the feeling of shame and they won't tell the doctor. Yeah, they're like, it's going great. It's going great, right? They, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's an understated point, but there's a lot of truth to it that um, patients want to please their physician. Um, like they want to please anybody in a position of authority who, um, you know, the way you want to please your college professor. I mean, you know, it's a similar kind of uh, uh, honored position in your life. And and I think think that is often understated. Patients do understand. Well, I I think the other thing, you know, is like, I think we underestimate how 
how much the personal relationship with the physician, like it's super important too for the physician to feel like they're doing something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that also adds a lot of complexity to this particular issue Mm -hmm. is you just want to do something because otherwise you feel kind of powerless or like your patient's going to give up and lose hope of, you know, being able to survive. And in some cases, you know, that's a real detriment because, right, we want the patient to have the best outlook possible, but we also want to be realistic about the the chances. Um, But the human impact for the physician, you know, to just have to give up or not try something, I think is a big, big reason we have marginal or products that aren't really effective that continue to be used because, you know, maybe that person's in the tail of the distribution. It's mm-hmm. like this sense that, yeah. you know, maybe this is the one patient who's going to benefit. It's, and it's very difficult to go in and say, you know, there's no disease-modifying therapy that that we can offer. I think you're right that I was, I was reading something about, like, I don't know, somebody did this analysis, and I don't know if it's true or not because it's outside my interest, but it was something about, like, uh, penalty kicks in soccer, and they say the strategic thing is for the goalkeeper just to stand still, but the goalkeeper in- invariably dives one side or the other, and mm-hmm. they actually, like, lose goals over the long run by doing this. But, um, you know, a human being is... Um, uh, it, it is impossible for them to resist the temptation to look as if they're doing nothing and so they yeah. would just always want to dive and and sometimes oncologists or all doctors are probably the same way diving in some direction even if that in the long haul perhaps is not in the best interest of of the goal the next topic i wanted to talk to you about is your conflict of interest paper with aaron mitchell which i thought was really um, impactful and a very important topic. And this was about the sort of esteemed and revered authors of the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines, which a few years ago was added as a CMS compendia, meaning that CMS by law has to pay for any drug that achieves a 2A or higher recommendation. And a couple years ago with some students here, we looked at like the level of evidence provided for the non the, the extrapolations beyond FDA approval, we found something like you know we I don't know I forget off the top of my head like we looked at like 40 50 drugs we found there were 70 FDA approvals we found that the NCCN recommend him for an additional like 44 uses beyond the FDA approvals so that's like force you know pushing CMS to cover these and when they did recommend it beyond the FDA they most commonly as a plurality they didn't provide any cited evidence like 30 percent or they provided like small underpowered uncontrolled kind of studies and generally sort of weak evidence and so we're critical of like you know this is a group that is deciding what we're going to pay for as a society and you know they're not really hanging their hat on strong evidence Mm -hmm. but then the work you do i think is just so um you know just adds to this question which is you all looked at the conflicts of interest among the guidelines authors and you found levels of conflict that I haven't seen too often. It was something like 85% of these physicians had received a personal payment from the industry. Um, the payments were not trivial. Um, they're certainly bigger uh, than those out-of-pocket expenses we talked about. Um, you know, so it's, we're talking about real money. I think it was like over $10,000. Um, I guess I'm curious, like, you know, what made you focus on this aspect of things, if you want to talk about that? And then also, what has been the response to work on conflict of interest um, in, your, in your professional life? Yeah, so I'll say Aaron Mitchell has been a driving force behind these those papers on conflict of interest. And, you know, one of the things that I've found to be really fascinating as someone who is, you know, 
peripherally involved in this space, mm-hmm. but not an oncologist. So have, you know, I have kind of a, a bit of an outsider's view has been uh, learning a bit more about how these decisions are made, how these panels are put together, and this complex relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and these thought leaders who end up Mm -hmm. being the people on these panels and making these decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's really fascinating with that, that particular topic of trying to figure out what's the financial conflict among people who are authoring the guidelines. You know, when you, I've sat in on a couple of, um, not NCCN guidelines, but on a couple of ASCO guideline Mm -hmm. um, committees, mainly related to helping to pull together information on costs so that that can be included as something to think about when the clinical benefits are the same. And it's been interesting to hear how those conversations go and how much, you know, and I'm sure this is true across other guidelines, but also across all other types of interactions there are individuals can really change the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe the other parallel is like a grant review. Mm-hmm. You know, if your reviewer is an advocate for your mm-hmm. grants, yeah. they can change the whole tone of the meeting yeah. and result in a really different outcome. Yeah. And so, you know, I think considering how and seeing how people are financially tied to the industry is really interesting just in and of itself and also how does that align with the policies that are in place to try to prevent uh, significant financial conflicts of interest yeah you know we found quite a few people were over the level that was considered acceptable by nccn Mm -hmm. now i think the larger question of financial conflict of interest in oncology and in medicine in general has been met with a huge amount of pushback by clinicians you know, so there's this general sense that they are not swayed by money. You know, we've heard that quite a bit. Um, and in fact, have had some heated comments related to why would we possibly care about this small amount of money, even if it's $10,000, you right. know, that relative to their other benefits, that's nothing. And, you know, my general pushback is the industry's really smart. So if it didn't work when they spent small amounts of money on meals or pens or whatever, they wouldn't spend that money, but it works. works. Like it gets them a return on their investment. Yeah. So as much as every individual feels that they're not impacted, I think overall they are. You can see this also, you know, like research is not immune to this. Like we know that you know for example if you're studying products and you have a pharma company for example who is supporting a center Mm -hmm. at your institution that helps support everybody's salary Mm -hmm. well you know maybe you're you double and triple and quadruple check any findings that make that you know company's product look less favorable right you know i think there are these kind of like small things that weigh in because when we start to really think about our job security and our resources and what allows us to do our work and to you know not have to think about money all the time like that that influence can also play, get, a, role. play a role in the academic side too and in one of the follow-up papers no, i wouldn't say follow up, but in, in another paper that you and dr mitchell did in this theme um, you looked at specific prescribing of drugs 
for which conflict existed versus not. And this was, I think, kind of, again, like so much really good research documenting. I mean, people probably have this feeling that there's probably some influence here, but it had never been empirically shown to my knowledge. And I wonder if you walk through that. There's a, a few drugs where, you know, if you did have more conflicts, you're more likely to use that drug over competitors in that in that space. Yeah, exactly. So um, we had a, a few different products that we looked at. I think the most interesting to me in that paper is what was happening with the TKIs. Yeah. So nilotinib, desatinib, and imatinib. And one of the reasons I think this is super interesting is, you know, you can trace back some of the other things that might have been going on to get you the results that we got. So the hypothesis we had is that if you were getting money from a drug company, you'd be more likely to use that drug out of the other treatments that were options. Um, and we found not completely consistent across all the products that the more money you got paid by a manufacturer of a specific product, the more likely you were to use that drug relative to the competitors. Yeah. So the market share for that drug was higher among people who got paid by the company yeah. versus people who didn't. Yeah. So in this setting of the TKIs, the really interesting thing is the same company makes two of them, imatinib and nilotinib. Mm -hmm. And when that company would spend money, mm -hmm. it would increase the share of nilotinib mm -hmm. and decrease the share of imatinib. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and look, there are these really interesting reports. I think Bloomberg had one of the earliest that was like, the headline is something like, Novartis can is cannibalizing the market share for imatinib mm -hmm. for their own other product. Mm -hmm. So it's very much like this issue of product hopping, yeah. where you know this drug is going to lose patent yeah. eventually. You yeah. need to get everybody onto your treatment. Right. Um, and so in our, when we were looking at it, we're like, oh, interesting. You know, like the one that's going in the opposite direction of our hypothesis is the one that's going to have a generic soon. Mm. So kind of supports this whole issue of you know, really being strategic about trying to get people to shift their behavior. Right, so all of the money is generally trying to drive up a share of their own products. In this one case, it's driving down the share of one but increasing the other, but it just so happens to be the one with longer exclusivity. Right, right? yeah, just exactly. Just a curious why coincidence, of course. <laughs> The last topic I wanted to talk to you about a little bit, which is something kind of different, is a little bit about how you think about um, grantsmanships, papers, um, you know, these kinds of concepts. And I guess what I would say, I don't know off the bat that I was kind of thinking while, while we were talking, was we talked a lot about incentives in the um, in the marketplace and how so many um, groups are, are sort of financially benefiting from the status quo um, and thus, real true reform at multiple levels in multiple places and in a way that actually contracts healthcare spending is very perhaps difficult or may not even happen in the short run. I guess I was thinking to myself, and you know, you don't have to comment if you don't want to, but I was thinking that um, I fear that it that even those of us who do research on the periphery of policy are not immune to this in this sense. This is not something I get from you, which is I think which is which I, the sense I get from your kind of your work is you're very, very serious about wanting to fix this problem, and you're not going to fix a problem unless you really understand a problem. Um, and But the sense I get when I look at policy is that I think there are some people who are, I don't know, broadly in policy, 
who benefit from the status quo because it gives them a chance to sort of comment and say the same thing over and over again on the same panels over and over again while nothing ever gets done. And so I do worry that even among like academics and policy that we may, there may be the perverse incentive in academics for academics who are policy experts to not uh, you know, really want to shake things up because we benefit from the status quo as well in the sense that people always ask our opinion on how things the status quo is bad. Yeah. So I was just at a conference recently where someone, you know, kind of made a joke about the complexity of the healthcare system and boy, if it weren't so complex, we'd all work ourselves right out of a job. Right. Yes. And so I yeah. think that it's like it's spot on what you're saying is that in some ways, I think there are two things that can go on. One is maintaining the status quo maintains our like necessary role in the system to show how broken it is. <laughs> right, 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 right. So right. if you fix it all, you're yeah. like, oh, okay, well, that's fixed. So yeah. I, I don't need to do this yeah. study anymore. Um, so there's there's that. There's also this issue of getting behind something that really isn't a very good fix because it's sort of like your you, idea. You've got this yeah, idea and yeah. even if you're shown evidence that it may actually not be as helpful um, that it's to me like not being able to abandon something that once you've learned that maybe you were wrong. It's it's hard to admit you're wrong as an academic. So you know we've had one of the papers I wrote a couple of years ago was on rebates and walking through the rebate system. So it was like pre everybody else blowing up about rebates and mm -hmm. just walking through what it means and uh, whether or not pass passing through rebates would be a good idea. And, you know, part of that discussion, we say, you know, that could actually save some money for people. But if you take a step back and you start to look at where rebates are happening, you start to realize, oh, you know what, this really has a disproportionate benefit in some cases for products where we might not really want to be promoting them. Mm. You know, what are the drugs that get huge rebates? Well, sometimes those are drugs that have generic competitors. Right. So like, in fact, we may actually be doing a little bit of harm by benefiting mostly people who are taking drugs with large rebates instead of benefiting all the people regardless of that strategy. Right. right. So it's been interesting thinking about, um, you know, how do you write things that are policy relevant now. So it's like time is not on your side. You need to be in the conversation, but you also have to be very cautious. So I find myself being tortured a lot by just really trying to make sure I'm not wrong. You know, uh -huh. it's like I've studied, for example, the Medicare Part D benefit almost as long as it's been around. And I even in the last probably five years have seen things where I'm like, oh my God, it wasn't totally clear to me that this is how this money gets counted yeah. in this phase. Yeah. And I think, you know, I study this. Yeah. I know it. Yeah. I'm not sure, like I'm sure plenty of people know the benefit. Yeah. I know the benefit well. I feel like I could, if anybody wants to talk about changing it, I yeah. feel like I should be in the conversation. Right. But... It's it is really sobering to realize, like, you know, these are not easy problems. Like there are lots of moving parts. And when you start to really try to break them up, like, you know, work, like t change the benefit into a math problem and solve for X. Right. It's so much harder than you think it is. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I think you're exactly right. People have an incentive to have, you know, sometimes the status quo. What I thought you were going to go for mm. is related to funding. And okay, let's talk about that. So, yeah. you know, I think one of the things that is really hard about working in a space, trying to understand policies and spending and access is that we don't have, you know, like nonpartisan groups. We don't have groups that don't have a financial interest who are really out there funding this. So there are a couple, but NIH has been, you know, very arm's length away. There was this economic guidance uh, that was put forward a few years ago about, you know, what would be considered responsive if you're studying economics in, you know, in the setting of health. And I think it really tied the hands in some cases for asking questions about spending on Medicare yeah. um, as an important outcome. Yeah. You know, I understand that these are institutes of health. Yeah. And so, like, the health has to be first. But it's been really interesting to see as someone who has tried very hard to make sure that I have non-vested interests supporting my work. Yeah. Um, that means not NIH because they're not interested they're not in interested. this topic. Of and course, this is yeah. what drives me. You know, it's right. like if I can solve part of this, I'll feel like I have contributed something mm, it's with my career. Purpose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but okay. then so it would be so much easier yeah. to go to pharma. Yeah. Who funds this? Yeah. The, you know, a I've known a lot of space. Yeah. yeah lots yeah. and lots of researchers in this space because yeah. it's easy. Yeah. It's, um, you know, and they actually have an interest in in funding the work. But then you end up in this same kind of shaky space of yeah. financial conflict. And while there are excellent researchers who do accept pharma money, it does put your all of your results have a big question mark, I think, from the public's perception. Yeah. Um, especially if they kind of lean in the direction that looks industry friendly. Which they often do in my, in my, <laughs> in my view, but uh, maybe coincidence. But I, I agree with your point. So you prefer, of course, um, uh, nonprofit foundation funding, uh, and especially in those cases where it, the foundation also has no skin in the game. The foundation is not right. short-selling pharma or anything like that. Um, in contrast, there are some foundations, I think, on the other side, the industry-leading foundations that are supported by the industry. So the founder of the nonprofit foundation is profiting from a certain direction. I mean, I think that's the one thing that I always, I think people lose in the conflict issue. The conflict isn't just that um, that there is a money movement. It's that, that one entity that's on the end of that money movement has a unidirectional vector. Industry doesn't make money by not selling their drugs. They're only one direction. Sell mm -hmm. the drugs, higher prices, more margin. And then whatever they're linked to in the, that downstream effect, the worry is that the directionality is going to be the same. And of course, there's been, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 papers and like physician conflicts of interest and editorial conflicts of interest and all these. And it is, that's, that's the consistent thing. The it's in the direction of the sponsor. It's the direction of the sponsor. Mm -hmm. But if the thing on the end is a nonprofit foundation that has no vested interest in the healthcare space, then there is no, I don't think, directionality. And I, I'm not aware of any study that's ever linked that to a direction of a sort of net bias or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, one of the things that I think is hard is trying to make sure that you're not going to have any influence yeah. over your results or your interpretation. 
So, you know, I have a couple of foundations that have funded my work and I'm super grateful for them to be funding things that I, you know, I think are going to move policy. In those arrangements, you know, I found it very important to only work with groups who are willing to say, we're hands off, you develop the question, we approve the question. You know, sometimes there's back and forth about like, if they have a specific interest in some subset of the question. So it tailors like exactly what part they're willing to fund. But then once you've agreed on the mission, you know, it's like hands off. There's no like we review and approve, we get the say. Our medical Um, writer's gonna write it. Right, yeah, Yeah. and I think that that's something that's super important to make sure you maintain that um, level of kind of scientific, you know, autonomy is that you're able to control what happens with the results. You know, I think one thing that has been a particular challenge for me, my very first grant was around uh, cancer parity laws Mm -hmm. um, and was funded by the American Cancer Society. And they have a lot of advocates um, who have been working in states to try to get these laws passed. And it was very difficult to have like the results suggest that maybe they weren't as helpful, the laws weren't as helpful as we had hoped. And in fact, it looked like the people who were spending the most before parity actually spent more more, after. Right, right, right. Which is super disappointing, but actually I think is a really good example of a funder who's like, go and do your work. We think this is important. We want to support and know the answer to this question. Um, And to be able to say, you know, like, like it's disappointing but you know that's that's science like sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want and in fact we can use that information to decide okay make fixes what a, yeah right, like yeah. what about later years yes. like so now we're doing some follow-up work looking at later years mm-hmm. on like states that have used caps instead and i think that those parts and having a funder who's like not only looking for one answer is like well now we know this general approach may not be the most effective. What does seem to work? Like, can we dig in and figure that out? Because if there's a federal proposal on the table, we could actually use evidence of what's working to help shape that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where having funders who are less like financially tied to the outcome, Mm -hmm. they may hope it goes in a certain way. And Mm -hmm. most of them will have a a way that they would, you know, hope Mm -hmm. that the, the results would turn out. But you know, without that independence, uh, it really makes it it hard for us to do our jobs. And certainly, you know, I think the pressure, it would be great if you had more completely agnostic groups mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. were funding this work mm-hmm. and providing more stable support so that it didn't feel so enticing to go after funds that may be a little bit more conflicted. I think, I mean, what, I agree with everything you said, and it makes me think of, you know, like a number of things. One is, I, you know, I wrote a paper, uh, the Medscape blog a few months ago, and I think uh, there's a little bit of pushback. People were a little, perhaps, some, pe- some people felt bristled by the title, but the title was something like, True Patient Advocates are Students of Evidence-Based Medicine. But I think what I would say broadly is, true advocates of whatever cause are students of evidence. And what do I mean by that? I mean that there are so many people out in this world whose heart is in the right place. 
they want to do good for be it a patient with cancer, be it you know in 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 a, in a low or middle income country. They want to do good for those people there. They want to do good for a lot of people. And I've met so many often young people, idealistic, who want to do good. And I tell him that um, you know my view of the matter is if you want to do good in the world and your heart is in the right place, one, God bless you, but two, you got to spend all the time you can to be good at methodology and critical thinking and science and 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 you know the work that you do. Why? And and the the simple reason is you don't want to be self defeating. You don't want to be like these blowhard politicians that anger me to no degree. Um, you know, I almost wanted to vote, you know, wish there was like a political party that just had one bottom line, which is that if we say the goal of our policy is X, we promise to invest every dime in making sure that well done empirical methods prove that X goes in the right direction. Right. And we will not do anything that actually hurts our stated objective. So if their goal is to reduce teen pregnancy and their intervention is abstinence only education and all the studies say that doesn't do it and maybe even increases it, then they're going to say we're going to abandon that. Like just a party of like internal validity, right? Yeah. yeah. I was like, I'm <laughs> happy to just like cast my fortune in the internal validity party. But I guess what I mean, I think what you say speaks to that, which is that like, um, that work you did was so important because one, there's been a course correction that maybe actually did allow it to achieve the stated aims. But if you never study anything honestly, you don't learn about when you shoot yourself in the foot. The next thing that you made me think about is, I think one of the tragedies of the modern university is that the modern university, like a lot of the other players in the healthcare space is also hooked on the industry funding. Mm -hmm. If you probably look at the revenue at one of these large cancer centers or something like that, it is probably tremendous amount of revenue from running industry-sponsored trials and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, we've had probably relative stagnation in NIH budgets. Fund lines are very, very difficult. There are all these things they won't fund from embryonic research to policy research to call, you know, mm -hmm. all these, all these things, gun research, you know, everything's, half the things that are interesting in the world are taboo. We can't fund that. Um, I think that's, I mean, that's bad for the culture of a university um, where I think uh, there's a better culture when you fund things broadly when the bulk of the funding comes from governments, uh, when you pick people who are smart and doing good work and you give them a lot, a, lo a lot of flexibility, you give them longer time horizons, you don't have a lot of deliverables and you let them explore what they think is worth exploring, sort of like programs like HHMI and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's just maybe a rant about the, the theory of it. But I wanted to ask you, how you think about where you wanna publish like where, how, how do you think about where do you want to p disseminate your scholarship? Um, I, I imagine that you may have the experience where every once in a while somebody comes back to you and says, we like your paper, but we don't want this in original article. We want it as a, as a research letter in our journal, or we want it on our blog or whatever. And you're always in these choices where, well, is it better to have a research letter in this journal or mm -hmm. try for, or, you know, is a bird in hand worth two in the bush? Or, you know, is it try for another journal? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think... I don't know. I mean, I think some some people who are pure scientists, they often make it seem like, oh, if you only want to publish in certain journals, that that's a bad thing uh, because it doesn't matter where good science is published. It's good science. Be proud of it. Let it be published anywhere. But there's this competing thing that like you, you need people to read your stuff if you want it to, <laughs> to make any change in this world. Yeah. Okay. So I guess like what do you tell your trainees about about publishing, about, you know, what they should be interested in? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So... Um, I think that there are a couple of things that really stick out to me. One is like, who are you trying to reach? Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to reach 
the policymakers and clinicians, you know, like high tier medical journals and health affairs um, are always in the mix for me mm -hmm. for policy related studies, which tends to be the bulk of what I'm doing. Um, you know, if people are doing more clinical studies, then going to the target audience, you know, it's like if your study is about blood cancer treatments, then think about what journals those doctors are reading mm -hmm. um, and really trying to target that way. As far as format, it's interesting because um, I do a lot of things that just by nature of the data source have a lot of limitations and are a lot of descriptive you know, papers. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, it's like I used math, you know, not like right. fancy modeling. Right. It's just like, well, I Simple added, counting, arithmetic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so right. Right. Um, because of the data sources themselves, like there's not, you know, generally, if you think about large data sources, yeah, the more rep like the broader the representation, the lower the richness of detail. Yes. So you have that trade off, right? Well so yeah. I've found myself to be really gravitating towards these short report formats, yeah. research letters, brief reports. Yeah. In fact, you know, I've seen lately I'll get a paper from a student and it's very long and, you know, I'm like, oh, man, I don't write long papers anymore. Uh, I just like, what's the point yes. I'm trying to make? Yes. And I found that to be the research letter format, I think, is really good. Yeah. Now, the downside of that is sometimes the policy nuance is really mm -hmm. more complicated and you need more space. Yeah. So then I think you're kind of balancing between, um, you know, like formats where you can have more space in the discussion section to provide that nuance. Um, so I've found that, you know, if I if I have like a, a top five, I always aim very high. It's just one of those things where I, I guess I've sort of always thought if I got into my second tier journal, I would regret not having sent it higher. Right. So right. I'd re I have a high tolerance for rejection, obviously, because mm. it happens a lot. But we, we, you have to. I think that's the one thing people forget. If you publish a lot of papers, you're going to be re you're you don't they don't even know how much. We're oh, rejected. yeah. It's yeah. like I've mm. I've re been rejected many, many, many times. But um, you know, I think it's always worth the risk. And when you have many of the medical journals kind of mm -hmm. having a similar format. Right. Makes it a little easier. Yeah. You're like, okay, let's start New England Journal, JAMA, mm -hmm. the JAMA Internal Medicine, mm -hmm. Oncology. You know, those spaces tend to be ones where I gravitate towards because they've published um, in the policy arena. And I'm often talking about cancer drugs. Yeah. Uh, when making broader points about policy that require a lot more nuance, health affairs is a great place mm -hmm. where policy makers are reading it, you know, and they're also really excellent at dissemination. So there's building in the nuance of the story and making it really translate into kind of plain language so that people can use the information. So those tend to be my, you know, like if I have a strategy, it's kind of like shopping around between those spaces yeah and then if that doesn't work you know it's a little bit more creative thinking about what's the best home think about your audience think about what you want to say and use the right length not the longest length right and get out of your head with that whole like research letter better than yes, this other I type of format uh, it's like no who cares who cares thank you right That's like if the told, message yeah. actually gets out there and people know the point of your study that's more important like don't exhaust the reader with a bunch of details that aren't yeah. necessary 
I think that I mean it's I think like the height of arrogance when you want an original article and 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 publish it and nobody reads it rather than a research letter that may not have everything you hope to have in it but at least it's like why it gets the point to a lot of people. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's well put. Um, and 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 then the other key is of course um, I think taking rejection, which <laughs> yeah. You know, I will say one of the things that I have found to be uh, something that I try to instill in trainees is um, not sitting on something that's been rejected or that has a revise and resubmit or where you got feedback. So one of the things that I think is a real detriment is, you know, people looking at the the deadline you get to turn around a revision as like the date to turn it in. Oh, and it's right. like, no, no. Yeah. you get those feet, that feedback and you turn it around as fast as you can, as fully responsive as you can get it back in. It's like, it doesn't exist until it's published. So I think because papers are the currency for junior faculty and students, it's like, you can't control grants very much, correct? especially students and postdocs, so correct, during yeah. most of your training. And so I'll often get questions from people who are getting close to needing to do a job search about, like, they're worried about grants and plans for grants. And it's like, yeah, you want to be thinking about that. You want to be able to talk about what you want to do in your career. But papers are what you can control. Yeah. So get that productivity going ask important questions, do really rigorous research. And then when you get a chance to revise something or if it gets rejected, get it back out into the review process. Like the longer it's on your desk, the less relevant it becomes. So, you know, I don't know how successful I, I've been. No, I, I tell people the same thing. I say every day the ball's in our court, it's a loss. Every day the ball's in their court, it's a win. Hit the balls back over the court. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing is like, I mean, the other thing is like, it's, I mean, it's not just to be flippant about it. Like, it's 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 not just like that you want to publish the paper. It's also like, um, you know, it's like any task in life. You get the revision, you look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to take me like 15 hours, 20 hours to do this. It's a horrible, like, oh, I'm crying, 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 you know, which I just got rejected, you know. Yeah, you get that, it feels terrible. It feels terrible. <laughs> but then you actually sit down and do it one day always goes faster than what you thought it would yeah always goes faster and the longer you sat on it the more guilt you have about sitting on it it would always have been better to do it when things were fresher in your mind and yeah. like those models are fresher so I always think that yeah and and then the other thing is of course unfortunately I feel bad for people who had to work with me these days because now I, I didn't used to be but now I might often be the limiting reactant I was like, oh yeah yeah, yeah me so too I apologize about that I know as much as I've just said that I, I have three that I know I guess need I, to I, get. I, got, I got a couple of my post-it notes <laughs> are looking at me yeah uh, but yeah I mean I feel I feel like uh, I mean yeah you you want I mean I guess if anyone has to be limiting reactant it should be me it shouldn't be it shouldn't be somebody who has like that's like their main you know thing on their plate but I mean, I think right. it's it's good advice because, as you say, there there are lots of things you can't control. There are few things you can control, and in this line of work, you should control the things you can control. And if you do that, and as you say, do honest good work, and and I think the thing you you kind of you said very quickly, which was ask the important key question. Yeah, I I just want to hit on this again, which is I think like you know I mean it's why I like your work so much, but I think it's like it's hard to teach people the skill. But, um, and you and I often feel um, sad when I hear people tell me about what they spent a huge amount of human capital on, that the question just wasn't that interesting or that important, or mm -hmm. the data sources were not, I mean, it's a good question, but we just can't answer it in 2019, I'm sorry. Yeah. There are lots of questions in life that I don't know the answer to. I have to live with uncertainty. Um, it, it, there's, a, there's something of an art to like thinking about the right question. I had had this, uh, this crazy idea 
of doing it with the Hemong fellows, but I probably should have like thought about doing it with like a PhD program or your PhD students, which was like um, having like like a research idea shark tank, and where you get like <laughs> nice. like like three good faculty um, who who are good at it, um, and you get like students come in. And, and, and they don't have to do too much, but they come in and they pitch an idea and they say like, look, I've, done a, I've spent last night Googling this and here's what I found on background. Here's what I think would be good to answer, ask and here's how I would kind of approach this question. And you just get the Shark Tank members to be like, hmm, okay, I like that. But, you know, I think here's what you're gonna find is difficult about it. Yeah. And just to practice that without doing the projects, but just practice that a little bit so that people get the sense of like, there's a lot of skill in just like that pre-contemplative um, phase. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that was really kind of a, a turning point for my own career was when I first started my faculty position at UNC. I was working on a plan for an institutional K award, you know, so like that covers three years of your time, 75% effort. And um, since I was coming from a postdoc at Harvard, there are some incentives to put individuals who are coming from outside places on the institutional K. It shows uh, right. that you're, you're recruiting. recruiting. Yes, I know, right? Right, yeah. so it's like a game. Yeah. Um, so I'm working on this idea and, you know, I really, I liked my K award idea, uh, but it was, it was focused on looking at supportive treatments for people with cancer. So use of antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, um, and pain medications and thinking about you know, how are they treated? And, you know, are there disparities in who gets what treatment? And part of it was motivated by this study that showed this increased risk of suicide and cardiovascular death after a cancer diagnosis and thinking about mm. like, are we like, what are our treatment patterns looking like? Right. Um, especially thinking about pain medications and um, overdose related mm. deaths. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I was motivated by that and I had been coming from a background doing a lot of work in mental health and I was mm -hmm. trying to bridge into cancer at yeah. that point. Yeah. And I met with a faculty member who is well known and uh, like a really dynamic leader and in oncology and just amazing, uh, Ethan Bash, who is at UNC and directs their cancer outcomes program. and. He started the same day that I did, and well, a friend of mine who had worked with him uh, and knew him from his national kind of reputation was like, you have to meet with him. So I did, and I was telling him about my K Award idea, and he's like, uh, he didn't say it this way, but it was basically like, I am so bored. Like, that is, that's boring. Um, and it was, again, not said in that way, no, but... No. I left that meeting after having had many other meetings with people who were like, this is great, it's super important, and you know, it's it's what you should do, and and you know, I'll support it. And then this other guy who's just like, okay, what's next? Tell me an actual good idea. Wow, yeah, yeah. And so it was but, really- But you feel grateful that he actually was yeah, honest. I yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was very off-putting at the time, because it's like, wow. Yeah, that's harsh. Um, that's, yeah, and as a junior faculty yeah. member, you're trying to figure out what you're doing. Yeah. And I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, like obviously he's not gonna be a person to work with on this project. And that project was funded by the institutional group and actually resulted in dozens of papers for PhD students and has actually informed some of their research trajectories since they've graduated, which I'm very grateful for. Like it was such a great experience. In fact, I was sort of like a mentor to other people on my mentored K award, well, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but what it also did was it made me realize, 
oh, I have to up the bar on these questions if I want to work with Ethan, like if I want to engage him or have somebody at his level who is like, I'm intrigued, go on, (laughs) you know? So it was one of those things where, you know, at the next point in time where I was sort of thinking about like access to cancer drugs, we had the CML paper that came out right after that. It sort of sparked my interest in this access to cancer drugs space. I came up with the idea to study cancer parity laws. They were starting to get passed everywhere. And I remember going back and sitting down with him and telling him about it. And he was like truly interested and intrigued. And it's like, oh, this is so cool. And I thought, okay, now we're in the realm of like, I've now taken my question from kind of more, you know, epidemiology to health policy like it's kind of transitioning to like who's the audience for the question yeah and you know where is this interest and even though you know it's not like i framed my agenda to work around things that i thought that certain people would be interested in but it just made me realize you know we do a lot in the academic world that is sort of maybe coddling people yeah you know it's like having a mediocre research agenda is great or okay or good enough you know like you just get the money get the paycheck yes do your work and in fact like what we would love to have is more people pushing the boundaries yes of work yes but again that that trade-off between if you just did the work if you did the if you did the idea that is supported by five out of six people yeah like you'll it, get funding. It's a it's a stable portfolio. Like you're gonna like exactly. have yeah. But there's no. Um, but you know, I mean, I got everything you're saying just really resonates. And and the way I think about it is like, um, I don't know. Maybe there's some listener out there who's like, oh, well, I get these people are crazy about like trying to ha- publish high impact papers. But it's I don't think it's not it's not that like it's not like you're cra- you're not craving the paper. But what you crave what I what I think it's really about is, um, I, I think, it's easy to feel like this career is super super long. But I think in perhaps the reality is that it may be, you know, 25 years or 30 years or something like that, 30 years, maybe if you're lucky, but for m- many people, maybe 15 years of really peak, uh, I think peak mm-hmm. publication productivity, 20 years, 25 years, maybe 15 years. And I guess what I want to say is that that's not a lot of time to try to make this world a better place and make it better for people who need, who need it to be better for them. And you got 15 years. You got 15 years where you're going to be in your sweet spot, where you're publishing papers that really matter. And and what do you want to do with your 15 years? You can answer lots of questions. There's infinite questions to answer. Mm-hmm. But you got to choose and you got to say no much more than you say yes yeah. so that your 15 years are 15 years where you're just hitting, hitting the nail on the head as hard as you can hit it. It doesn't mean to drive a particular policy conclusion or agenda. It just means giving people the information that allows us as a profession and society to try to make some like aching progress against all the inanity and stupidity and like self-defeating behavior in this system and greed and fraud and all this like bad stuff out there and if you want to do that you got 15 years what are the questions you're going to pick why are you going to take your blood sweat and tears and pour it into this work that should matter because when you wake up in the morning this should matter to you that's what i want to tell i always want to tell like don't do research if you're not if your heart's not in it. Yeah. You don't you want to be a researcher? There's lots of other things you can do with your life. But pick pick it because you think it matters and you got a small window, make everything count. 
And that's why I think it's important that somebody like Ethan is going to honestly tell you when he when he's sitting up in his chair, looking you in the eye. Oh, really? Go on. Yeah. No, tell me. Tell me. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that matters. And I think that, um, you know, when you when you feel like you convey that to a junior person, I don't I don't know if I always feel that I convey it. But when you do feel it, you feel that they're sort of thinking about it the same way. It's a good feeling because, you know, there's another good agent out there in the world who's going to do some good. I don't know if that. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's where the responsibility of the faculty member to balance when you deliver this information. So one of the things that I've also tried to balance back is, you know, there are certain times in a person's training where it's not really about having the question that's going to, like, you're not trying to solve all the world's problems. You're trying to meet a requirement to graduate (laughs) so you can get paid to solve (laughs) problems that are important. Yeah. And so there's this balance of, you know, well, people often say things like, you know, your dissertation is not going to be your best work. It's Mm -hmm. like your dissertation is a learning exercise, right? You're asking a big question. You're solving the methods to you're learning everything and you're doing it mostly independent, um, which is very hard. So in a lot of ways, it's also figuring out, you know, maybe a person who has a really strong research question that they can apply a really good research design to, but it isn't going to be the most like, it's not going to pull in the Ethans of the world or people who are thought leaders, but it's going to really teach them a solid skill set so they can bring that to the next phase. I think that's where we have to differentiate. It's um, kind of recognizing what is the ultimate goal of this particular assignment. And how do we make sure that, you know, we help people grow in a way that gives them the tools that they need to take into the next next part of their training, where they're able to ask things that are, you know, kind of the burning questions. If you can get there earlier, you know, like while you're in training and your dissertation ends up being a burning question that kicks off your whole research agenda, yeah, that's great. But I do think that that tends to be you know, you're so like focused on classes and then you're focused on comps and then you're focused on like getting to a defense. So it's not exactly that luxurious time to think about what's important to you. Yeah. But I think when people start faculty jobs, it's like important to kind of do a little soul searching, like what actually matters? Like, what are you trying to solve? That's the moment. Yeah. And you need space. You need a little bit of headspace to get there. Um, And we don't really allow for that so much you saw my tweet recently about busy uh-huh. oh yeah yeah because i said that like there i think there are a lot of people out there who uh ha- have no time to think and they also are kind of interested in letting uh, you know that they have no time to think and i said well don't worry about letting me know because it, it I shows can tell. yeah <laughs> i can tell i can tell yeah. you have no time to, because you're right like um you're right i mean absolutely right because i don't you can't be critical of someone who's trying to do what it needs to what they need to do to get the graduation and, yeah. and get their foot in the door their faculty spot but i do think that you know and it's a self-reflection thing. It's so easy to become on come on faculty and think, well, how can I just continue my appointment and jump through the hoops and get to be promoted and then blah, 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 have my career and go to my three lectures a year. And but blah, what blah, blah. a boring existence. Exactly. What a boring existence. And you could make so much more money if you were exactly. not in the academic world. Exactly. Why are you taking the pay cut? <laughs> like, yeah, you could. You could make so much more money doing something else. And it's a boring existence and you're just, and you don't have your heart into it. Um, and that's when I think you got to do the reflection and think, yeah. what is the issue that lights you up? And, and what can you show others about this issue that they don't see or that no one has ever shown? And how can we push really, really hard on that issue? Yeah. And then I think I bet, I mean, I don't know this to be the case, but I suspect that people look back and they think in retrospect, like, boy, time has flown. 
because it's I mean I, I mean I've yeah. been I, my first paper was published a decade ago so it's been a decade for me and I look back and I say oh my god that's a decade it feels like a snap of the finger yeah it feels like nothing and um and then I think like all these things that I thought there would be some traction on how far have we come and oh my god it's sobering to it's, look at yeah. the number of papers with no citations <laughs> yeah no <Right>. citations <laughs> we're, like, we're, we're 100 people downloaded and I know 80 <laughs> downloads are me because I keep clicking on <laughs> keep clicking on it well um, I want to thank you Dr. Dusitzina for coming on the podcast and taking us through I think your very important work on cost of drugs on out of pocket spending on specialty pharmaceutical drugs um, your thoughts on conflict of interest which I think are particularly apt and 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 for walking us through sort of how you think about career, I think I, I think that really, um, you know, that'll mean a lot to the listeners who have the courage to stick it out this long. But who? But maybe <laughs> I'll snippet it and I'll make it a little a promo. But I think it'll mean a lot to the listeners um, to sort of to hear somebody say that. Um, and uh, you know, I really want to thank you for putting out a great talk, and I hope we'll be able to put out some of that to the plenary session listening public after July first when that paper comes out. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.